Here it is, finally, season two, episode 25 of the new year, 2022, Out of Play Area, the Game Developers Podcast, coming at you, new beginnings, new waves, all that goodness. Your boy started a new job with Epic Games, working on Fortnite Creative. It was super hard to leave EA, but yo, never be afraid of change. Always seize new opportunity. That is how we grow and challenge ourselves. So with that quick announcement out of the way, we are back every other Monday. New episodes, fresh in your podcast, inbox, wherever it is that you listen to these things. On today's episode, we sit down with my good homie, Moral Fury, whom I had the great benefit of working alongside of back in my Rockstar San Diego days. On this premiere episode, we go into his role as a studio design director at EA Fire Monkeys, way down in Melbourne, Australia. And of course, we navigate through his 20 plus years in the ever-changing gaming landscape how he broke in, studying at Carnegie Mellon, working his way through console development into mobile development and everything in between from AAA games to live games as a service. And then, you know, we go forward facing and talk about the future, what's ahead, where we've come from, the latest and greatest trends and ways that we can improve the industry overall. You know, we're gonna get into his catalog, working at Rockstar, working on Red Dead Redemption, working on Midnight Club 2 and 3, working at Zynga on Cityville, Farmville 2, and then Battlecore, Independence Day Extinction, and where he's at now at EA Fire Monkeys, doing Real Racing 3, Need for Speed No Limits, and The Sims Mobile. Please welcome Mauro Fury. Let's start the show. Bienvenido, bienvenue, welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. I always get up, get my little cup of joe, I like to put a little coconut oil. In my in my coffee, it's a new thing I've been doing. That's the the good quality fats. Is that what that's about? Good quality fats. I've been trying to lose weight. Okay, how's it going? Really well, actually. I changed my diet. I went to this uh, keto diet. Tell me more. I'm gonna tell you more because every time you say keto, a lot of people, my wife actually included, just gives you the riot act like you're gonna fucking die. <laughs> my, my wife too. My wife hears about <laughs> that thing like kill yourself. It's not sustainable. Not sustainable, and and maybe it's not. It's hard to do studies on diet because you got to do those proper clinical study for 15, 20, 30 years, right? Before you're going to find out it caused you cancer or whatever. Yeah. So you never know. But all I know is for me, it's working. Every time. And, that, and that's, I think, the most important thing about losing weight or getting fit is find, find out what works for you. Yeah. You know? Other people don't matter. It's your body. It's your life, right? You got to find yeah. out what works. So I just stopped eating carbs, stopped eating pasta, stopped eating pizza, stopped eating potatoes. And the thinking is that instead of your, your body burning carbs, it, it burns fat instead. So it's a whole different, you know, your liver and kidneys work more and all that. So, you know, I get the blood work done, make sure 
all that stuff's in check so far, so good. Great. You put the the good oil, the coconut oil, you have the olive yeah. oil, you have the avocado, the feta cheese, you know, the good shit. And uh, slowly but steady, man, six months, I've lost uh-huh. 40 pounds. Wow. I dropped uh, my body fat percentage by 10%. Holy cow. I used to be 37%, which is morbidly obese. Now I'm 27%, which is overweight. So I've gone from morbidly obese to overweight. Again, find what works for you. Every other diet I ever tried, I did it for two weeks, three weeks. For whatever reason, this, I've been doing it for six months. So I, I, I do diet. I go for long walks, 50 minute walks. There you go. And I do a little bit of a ring fit. Got to work video games yes. a little bit, you know? I will admit, Ring Fit gives me a burn. I was super skeptical. I was like, come on, man, this little rubber band, you know, and I'm going to do crunches and I'm going to do presses and squeeze. And, but yo, I get a burn. And if, if you think you're tough, you know, you just kind of extend the difficulty and it extends the time and the resistance. Oh, yeah. And uh, whoo. I worked out that in the... Oh man, that thing kicked my ass. I look up. I, I did it for eleven minutes. <laughs> you gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> I love it. The Apple Watch actually has like a mode. They have like a, a gaming fitness. And so I love it, right? If it wasn't on the Apple Watch, I'd be like, nah, screw the ring fit, it's not gonna count. And I was like, Oh, perfect. I got a mode for it. Excellent. Brilliant. I love to hear that the numbers are going in the right direction. How do you feel? Yeah, you know, the, after that's that? the craziest thing. The energy is up. Mm-hmm. The energy is absolutely up, and the appetite goes down. That's the other thing that's wow. really interesting is before, you know, you get the munchies at, at night, hunger. Yes. It's like, I'm not hungry. That's so weird. And so then your your portion control goes down as a result, but you're not hungry. So I feel good. I guess nutritionally satiated, right? Like your body's got everything it needs. So it's not asking you for more. I guess so. Yeah. I appreciate your time and this opportunity. A, the fact that we are at least under the same umbrella, the EA umbrella. Yeah. Somehow we ended up at the same company again. Isn't that weird? A small industry. That's how it works. Tiny. Tiny. You always hear it and you think it's a cliche, but it never ceases to surprise me. As much as it grows, as much you see the press about billions of dollars in the industry and it just keeps growing, it's still tiny. It's still tiny. I had the benefit of sitting across from you for a good chunk of time when I first got to Rockstar, working on Red Dead 1, and I sat across from you. And for whatever reason, I'm like a junior in, in comparison to you. Just just focus on like, I got to do a good job. You know, I want to prove myself. I want to make it. And what I should have been doing is taking more advantage of having you nearby and, and just asking you, man, and learning from you and talking to you and like taking you out to lunch, man, and just picking your brain. So I'm happy that years later, almost a damn decade later, I get to close that loop, man, and do the things I should have been doing when I was starting out and tapping in. So I'm here now to to right the wrongs of my juvenile past. Let's dive right in and let's start with the present day. Where you at now? What's your role? What are you doing? I've been in Melbourne for four and a half years. Almost, you know, came over here almost five years ago. And I came to be the studio design director at Fire Monkeys EA in Melbourne. So um Overseeing the designers are our four live products. We do mobile games down here. We do uh, Need for Speed No Limit, Real Racing 3, The Sims Free Play, The Sims Mobile, all mobile games. And it's funny, as we work our way backwards in my career, you'll you'll see that it's almost kind of meant to be because I did racing games for a good, yep. a good portion of it. And then I went uh, and did like casual simulation games over at, uh, at Zynga. It's rare, I find, to find a studio that actually does both 
like Fire Monkeys does. I should add, though, you know, at least for the purposes of this call, that I speak from my own opinion. I don't speak for EA today. This is my all the everything I say is uh, from me, for better or worse. <laughs> Good call, good call, yeah. The show is all about taking developers out of the play area, right? Like far Ooh. out of the comfort zones and the lines of of don't say this and don't say that. We speak from our perspectives, our point of views. No, I want everyone to have an honest view of what a, a career in video games is like. It's both incredibly rewarding and exhilarating, but it's a fucking pain in the ass at the same time. And a bit scary as, as well. Especially to be in it as long as you have yeah. the console generations that you've sat through. And yeah, now as mobile, mobile is taking the market share, right? And even you have the console devs mimicking and emulating what the mobile space is doing, right? Oh, it's a whole different world, man. It's some of the same skills, but it's, an, it's also an additional set of, of things you never even thought about when you were in console um, that are more important on mobile. It's a kind of a theme in my career is is just trying to keep up with the times, staying relevant. Yes. You have to remain flexible because if you don't, you'll just be left behind before you know it. Like a dinosaur. And it happens yeah. in, in an instant, man. When I left Rockstar, the analogy I used to give is like an ostrich with their head in the sand. And I kind of popped my head up and kind yeah. of looked around like, what's going on? I was on Red Dead Redemption for five years. Man. And so, you know, you look up after five years, it was 10 years total that Rockstar. And I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? And, yeah. you know, all of a sudden we got this fancy machine in our pockets and uh, Facebook was actually blowing up. And, uh, you know, Farmville and Cityville were actually setting the world on fire. So that's, I was like, what's, what is this? This, this? this Facebook game? And, you know, you kind of laugh it off a little bit when you're doing a PlayStation work. But when I joined... Zynga Cityville had 20 million daily, daily active users. So in any given day, you know, 20 million people are playing that game. It's an, it's an incredible number to think about. You would have access to those players in a day, right? Like you publish your game and boom, in a day yeah. or two or that week, you were reaching that many millions of players. It's unprecedented. It's, it's unreal like how quickly you can, you can change something. You know, with PlayStation, you got to go through cert. You know, you got to mm-hmm. go through all these certifications. By the time you get out, I don't know how long it was, six weeks, two months to get something out at, at yes. the bare minimum. We would just flip a switch and push out an update onto the web. <laughs> just- I remember those times. I remember getting the constant barrage of notifications. It was just in my face, right? Like your friend has sent you some currency, right? Or, hey, come check out their garden or, hey, your thing is ready. It got me, right? Like against my will, it got me. I was like, all right, man, I'm going to go jump in and raise my farm right i think that was the one that got me in for sure cityville farmville cityville one of those guys one of those. it was mm-hmm, it's, yep. it's the power of the platform mm. you'll see it again again and again in my experience it starts with television at least when i grew up right what's on tv impacts you we'll talk about poker that was a huge oh, yes. thing. The reason poker blew up is because the travel channel, eventually ESPN, was showing it. That's why people gave a shit about poker again. Yeah, it was simultaneous with my sports highlights. Like, I would be there watching basketball highlights, and then you would see, like, you know, Negrano or somebody, and you would see, like, and it's quick action, right? It's like flop, and then boom, bunch of money on the table, right? And it's just like, what? And then celebrities are getting into it. And and so now I'm sharing this, the TV with my aunt, right? Like, Tia, you don't watch sports. What are you watching? Like, oh, but, but I watch poker. I was like, okay. 
And all of a sudden, we're, we're not only watching it, we're saying, hey, maybe we should play, right? And all of a sudden, we're having home games. All my mates are out, right? Why not? I bought the nice felt. I bought the really good chips. I spent like 300, 400 bucks on chips just so I could hear the nice sound of the clay chips because I was sick of those chips you buy at Walmart. The plastic. Plastic, plastic tinny shit. I hated that. As soon as you hear good clay chips, you want that. Because when you're home and everyone's shuffling their chips, it creates this symphony of yes, of, right? And you, you match that with the smell of smoke and whiskey and, and your friends chatting away. It's an atmosphere that's just so engrossing. And then when you play with your mates, if you lose 20, 50 bucks, you don't care as much because it goes mm-hmm. to the fun, right? And, and so yeah. that atmosphere is what I, I just, I, I live for it. We play at home all the time. And fuck, we started playing at, at work all the time too during lunch. Yeah. <laughs> oh man i got yeah. i got i gotta hear more i gotta hear more for the uninitiated what do you do as a studio design director what does like a typical day look like it's a lot of meetings you mm. know when you when you get up to that level and this is a challenging thing let me tell you is you no longer actually do the work and in a lot of times you'll even have a decision or an idea the way you want something done and you and you don't often want to say it outright you want to be able to teach and mentor your team so they can come to those same realizations, those same decisions on their own. And this is a very, very difficult thing to do. I struggle with it all the time because I just want to say what I think. And I, you know, sometimes I say it too often. But the, the goal is to get your team to understand your thinking so that they can start making those decisions for themselves because you're supposed to grow the talent. Right, mm-hmm. it, can't, it can't just be me. I mean, there's four projects going on. I can't be everywhere all the time. So it's it's God. just about kind of teaching everyone how to think and how to how to design, and then doing reviews and so forth to make sure the best possible work goes out there. And are your reviews structured like the whole team looking at the same thing? Is it more intimate? How does that look like? It's a mix. It's a mix. You know, you do you want to give opportunities for the team to chime in because if you don't, you don't have buy-in. If you're not buying, you don't have the, the team's not going to give a shit, honestly. So they have to feel like they own it. There's also a process and deadlines and timing, you know, that have to be adhered to. So there's often, you call them like time box and shit. So, all right, this is the moment of feedback, right? Yeah. This is the moment to brainstorm and sky's the limit. But very quickly, we're going to talk about how many programmers or how many artists we have available to you when this thing has to go out. And then you start making uh, trade-offs and prioritizing. This was, by the way, the number one thing I learned leaving Rockstar and going to Zynga. Rockstar was a little different, right? Rockstar, the first thought that came to mind was, you know, I think it's Lexus' slogan, the relentless pursuit of perfection. I think that's their, their slogan. I thought, oh, is that, you know what? I don't think Rockstar was a pursuit of perfection. Rockstar was the attainment of perfection. It's not the fucking pursuit that mattered. It's we're going to fucking get there. Hell or high water. <laughs> Hell or fucking high water. We're going to get yes. there. And, you know, it's the classic. My dad had this as growing up in the shop. You know, do you want it cheap? Do you want it good? Uh, or do you want it on time? Fast. Yeah. Fast, yeah. right? And, you know, I think Roxanne was like, you know, okay, we won't worry about it on time. But damn, it's going to be fucking good. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to be cheap and it's not going to be quick. But it's going to be damn good. And that's exactly it. And they would not settle for less. And they would they would push deadlines or they would push the talent. For me, I'll speak personally. My time at Rockstar, my time at Angel Studios before Rockstar, which you can talk about. 
a few people worked at it when it was Angel Studios, right? Before they yeah, got bought yeah. out. It was easily the best time of my life, man. Honestly. I honestly get emotional thinking about my time back there because I threw everything at it. I threw everything at it. Now I'm 44 now. I was 24 back then. So life is different. I have a family and a kid now. I, I did not back then. I was young. I was in San Diego, Paradise City, by the way. That's how I think of it. It's fucking yeah. unbelievable place to be. I was living it up. But my professor in college used to talk about leaving artifacts. He called them artifacts. And when we used to make games on CD-ROMs, I could really understand that. Like later on, you know, hopefully it's not like E.T. digging it up in the landfill. But at, oh, some, God. <laughs> at some point, someone's going to dig up your shit. Like, oh, what is it? I want to leave something on this earth that meant something and Mm -hmm. for me midnight club two midnight club three red dead redemption one those are my artifacts i have immense immense pride i've been playing midnight club three the last few weeks probably because of this chat you know it makes me reminisce but that's my happy place oh yeah first of all it's a game so it's fun shit to play right games are fun but it's also like this nostalgic it hits me in my soul. It's unrelenting when I play. And, and no other game has the feel of that game. One, because it's designed that way. Mm-hmm. But it's it's just, yeah, it's something special. And I've been playing with my daughter, which is a whole nother level of emotion. Wow. Because, you know, she didn't even exist back then. And she's playing. I often ask her, I say, are you playing this because I made it? Or are you playing it because it's good? You know? And she's like, it's good. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and the emotions take over. Because yeah, kids, kids don't lie. Kids do not know how to lie. There's a certain age where, like, they cannot tell a lie. Oh, yeah. Or they, they learn to lie through school, or, you know, they, it's a learned behavior, right? It's not something that comes naturally. The parent-daughter relationship is, daughter-son relationship is something special. Let me tell you how my video game journey began. Please, man. I want to go way back. I want to go way it. back. I want to go. I think I looked it up. It was 1983. I was the year of my birth. There you go. That's when it all began. Awesome. <laughs> Diaz, Diaz came to this earth. <laughs> and it's it's spread like a, a tsunami. <laughs> I was homesick with the chicken pox. This is before the chicken pox vaccine, by the way. So kids got sick with chicken pox all the time. Yeah, yeah. 1983, I was probably like six or seven years old. And I was home with the chicken pox. And my dad came home with an Atari 2600. And, you know, he felt bad. I think I was probably recovering at the time. Felt bad as a hero is the Atari 2600. And so we're playing combat. Like as a gift to you or yeah, like hey, yeah, just like, for the family? Oh, you know, as a gift to me. You know, you're feeling like shit here. Yeah. Did yeah. you know what it was? Or was like, no. you had no clue? Okay. I had no idea, man. I mean, this is, you know, he picked it up at Sears, I think. We lived in uh, New Jersey at the time. So we play. And he was so good. He played with me. You know? We were playing, uh, obviously, combat. That's the pack-in. Remember when games used to come with pack-ins? They don't do that shit anymore. Yes, man. <laughs> you get the whole thing. You get to play the game. They yep. play combat. Just had a bitch in time. I mean, I mentioned it, my dad's a car mechanic, so he loves cars. So he bought an uh, Indy 500. You know, it's like, you're just moving like a pixel. Yeah, <laughs> or actually, yep. it's four pixels, one for the body, or five pixels, one for the body, and then four for the wheels. It's okay. Like, that's that's okay. the Indy car. And you're driving around laps, but, you, but it's multiplayer. You're playing all kinds of things with them. And then we bought this game, my, one of my favorite games, still to this day, Enduro. Activision made it. Enduro. And you would, you're scored on how many cars you would overtake and the weather conditions would change. It would be foggy. It was just so much fun. Just played the shit out of that stuff. So that was my introduction. If my father had not done that, uh-huh. I would not 
be into games, right? That one single moment in history changed my entire life. That's amazing. So I'm always looking. I'm always like, okay, of course, I'm getting my daughter video games, but I'll take her to soccer. Maybe she'll be a soccer star. Let's put her in mm-hmm. piano lessons. You never know if pianos, you know, you, it's why you expose your kids to so many things because you never know. What's going to create that spark? Which one of those moments will be the will be the spark? What's so obviously easy to catch on to is the fact that your first game was a racing game. Yeah. And then the games you go on to design for have been racing games. That's a, a wonderful full circle. Yeah, it's weird that way. I mean, I like racing games. I love, you know, they're not necessarily my favorite, but I, I, I do appreciate them for, for the energy, for the absolute edgier seat feel that they give you, the intensity. They're fantastic in that regard. And that's generally the kind of games I like. My favorite game of all time is uh, Ninja Gaiden 2 on the Nintendo Entertainment System. Ninja Gaiden 2 on the NES. So I'm trying to picture it. It's like side-scrolling, left to right, kind of linear. Yeah, but you're a ninja. You're a fucking ninja. Oh, let's not forget that. Let's not forget that. That's the whole point of that. You're fucking slashing and throwing throwing stars. And I used to j- love jumping over it. The-, the throwing star would come back like a boomerang. I always loved jumping over it so you can get it, keep it going. Just fucking just keep that thing flinging around. It's one of the you could actually play on the power glove by the way to to, to reasonable i'm aging myself <laughs> no but that's a nugget man like I, I think i still see people rock a power glove here and there for like outfits of nostalgia i never owned a power glove and i don't i don't buy one today right i like to keep it as like this rare precious item that kind of eluded me but again nintendo just i don't know how they came up with this thing and what made them think that like hey this is a peripheral and people will buy it and it totally caught on. I remember people that had it instantly had this kind of aura of coolness or access to rare epic loot. How do you play it? Is it like the controller was on your forearm or did the fingers do something? Yeah, they had all different modes. They had to be like okay. 15 different ways to play on it. Jeez. You can put input different modes. So it depends. Obviously, like Mike Tyson's punch out was the best on that because you were literally punching up or punching straight. And then you would pull back to activate the super uppercut. You felt like a badass. <laughs> Fucking shit, take it to them. That shit was amazing. Now, for Ninja Gaiden, I played it in the mode where you just stick your hand out. We have a video here so you can see me. You stick your hand out. And if I twisted it to the right, my dude would walk to the right. And if I okay. twist so it to the left, he walked like to the right. It's like a full arm rotation, right? Yeah. You're rotating your arm, your thumb's pointing up versus pointing to yeah, the left. Yeah, just twist. You twist, twist. And then, yeah, Twist. your fingers would do the um, A, B button. So you'd be like slash, 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 or jump, jump, okay. jump, jump. Okay, but index it, finger, slash, yeah. middle finger, jump. Okay. But Ninja Gaiden, they'd have all these sections where you go jump back and forth between the walls to get uh-huh. up and go back and forth wall jumping. And so that felt fantastic because you go twist, 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 oh. twist, twist. <laughs> like if you're like a Jedi deflecting projectiles at you. Yeah. With the, that's so cool. amazing. I have an NES, but I don't have a power glove, so I might have to go look up the damn power glove on eBay or something like that. Because this is, if you're talking about early 80s, and then if you think about the Wii, right, which is like kind of the first time that stuff kind of came back into mainstream, like this physical Mm -hmm. gesture business, the Wii was like, what, mid-2000s? So you're talking about 20 years ahead of the game. Dude, with like physical all, gestures. It all comes back in circle. This is the this is life incarnate. I mean, fashion, look at fashion. Yep. It goes all the way back. I in the year 2000, I was in college. Mm-hmm. I was working in VR. I was doing VR work. Our our professor Randy Randy Pausch, 
he had gone over to Disney on sabbatical. Disney's mm-hmm. doing like Disney Quest. Remember the Aladdin? He worked on the Aladdin. Oh, that's yeah, yeah. he came back with all that fucking hardware. And so I'm doing VR in in the year 2000, and here we are in 2021. Everyone's like VR. I'm like, oh come on! It took 20 years to finally come around. Where did you go to college? When you're going to major, you know the digital space is the space you want to be in. Yeah. So look, I, I grew up with Nintendo. I grew up with Super Nintendo. My dad also got me a, a PC. You know, he'd go to those computer fairs. I went to a computer fair once and he bought me a graphics card. I think it was a CGA or EGA graphics card. And he, and I got a Microprose game, F-117A. Stealth Fighter was a fantastic little game I played all the time. But now that I have a PC, I'm learning how to code in BASIC. Right? Basic. I, I was in high school. I joined the computer class. I'm learning Turbo Pascal. I was part of the computer club and we would yeah. actually like go to different places and do these like competitions where they like give you like these programming tasks and you, were, you had an hour. It was me and my and two guys. We were on this team and we just hack away. Uh-huh. I was getting into computers. The competitions are literally like one hour coding challenges Yeah. in Pascal? Yes, ter- in Turbo wow. Pascal. I was the fastest typer. So I'm, I'm, I'm the one slamming the keys. Are you like the team captain or you're like the... No, the other guys are way smarter than me. <laughs> okay, okay. But they would tell you. They would kind of communicate through you. Yeah, like, and, right, and, and yeah. you know, when this shit gets down the last five minutes, you're just going like crazy. Oh, God, you're like tapping like crazy. Oh, we did all right. I think we got like second or third place. So we, I got the trophy somewhere. Just to get a sense of scale, like how many schools were at these things? Was this like a local thing, like a citywide thing? It was, a like, it was like a gymnasium. I think it was like a gymnasium filled with all these tables and you know you can imagine the hardware back then we like truck it in all these pc towers and crts everywhere i imagine it's like what windows 3 or like dos uh late dos i think we had windows this was 1995 is when i graduated high school and went to to college so look when i maybe windows 95 was coming on the scene yeah maybe you're right that's right it came out Mm -hmm. so in terms of colleges I just yeah. I, I applied to you know what I thought were the best computer science schools. Okay, I, you I knew computer, you knew programming, therefore yeah. computer science was your I major. I, was, I liked programming. Let's do something with computers. So I applied to computer science. I applied to Cornell. What was it about programming that attracted you? I mean, the fact that I could make stuff. Mm. <laughs> I wasn't actually making games yet. I made myself like a like a database program to like organize my mm. CDs. I remember doing that. And I was <laughs> nice messing nice. around with, you know, it felt like some, and obviously I was, I was into games and, and you know, also like, well, what else, what else am I going to do? I, I was okay. I was doing okay in computers. So just went for it. Yeah. The I, thing, the thing that you're like competing in and winning competitions in, it's just like, Hey, I'm just going to double down on this. Right. And keep riding this out to see where it takes me. Yeah, exactly. So I applied to Cornell. Anytime I run into someone went to Cornell, I hate them because Cornell told me no. <laughs> Cornell, yeah, I got a, I got a buddy that went to Cornell. Remind me, man, Cornell is like upstate New York, like Ithaca. I don't know if it's it's not quite upstate. I think it's actually near the south. But city. If you're from Manhattan or New York City, everything else is upstate. <laughs> everything is upstate. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. That's what it is. I I apologize. That that is my bias. <laughs> no, but I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon University. That's not too shabby, Mauro. They seem to be much more recognized for their CS than Cornell. Yeah, I'll be honest. That school kicked my ass. 
Mm. That shit is intense. Absolutely intense. But yeah, so, so fucking rewarding, man. And I did so much cool shit there. So you, you start off in computer science. I'll actually be I'll be flat out a little bit of honesty in this. There were courses in there that were so hard, so hard. And I remember looking around and I was kind of like the only Hispanic in my class. You know, the classes are small enough, maybe the freshmen, maybe a hundred. So we're all sitting in the auditorium. I was like looking around. I started kind of said, I'm the only Hispanic. I questioned myself, my own self-worth. And I asked myself, am I, am I filling a quota? Am I the, you know, cause I checked Hispanic on the application. I was yeah, like, am I yeah, here yeah. because I put myself Hispanic? And I'll never know the truth. That. And, and, and as time went on, my self-worth improved. And I was like, you know what? No, I deserve to be yeah. here. I'm worthy enough. But it, it had crossed my mind because it was so hard. It was so hard. And you're surrounded by geniuses. You know, you, when you're mm-hmm. in high school, you're like, oh, I'm okay. When you get everyone in the, in the, country, in the world, yeah. you know, yeah, in when the, the pool science up. program of, of CMU, there are some absolute freaks there. Absolute geniuses. <sighs> Moral man, I think you're definitely hitting something in me for sure. I've asked myself that question time and time again, right? Like, am I an affirmative action hire or something like that? Yeah, because I, I, I definitely am happy to always check a box that I see I identify with. And I remember rolling with a crew and we all applied to, you know, at the time it was, I think, Stony Brook. And we all had plans to go to the same school and, and seeing people not get admitted right and and being like hey yeah i got admitted but you know i think i'm a good student but I, i'm no different from you you know academically or gpa wise or whatever like i wonder what they're basing this stuff on so that's crazy that you're bringing that to light because yeah in the i guess in the engineering degree right i went into computer engineering and i would look around and and i feel very much the same way i'm, I'm surrounded by a lot of asians I'm surrounded by very little Spanish people, you know, mostly Americans, right? Like Europeans, right? But a big Asian contingent for sure, for sure, you know? It's just something it's something worth calling out, right? Like feeling as though, am I where I should be? Do I have to work harder? You know, like, hell yeah, you know, I'm going to make it happen, right? Like I got the opportunity, I'm going to make it happen. This feeling never leaves you. It's part of humanity. It's, you know, the imposter syndrome is there all the time. I still have it. I've been doing games for 20 years. I've, I've, I've made some really successful products. Hell I yeah. still feel like, am I worthy? Do I deserve to be here? Do I, you know, it's, it will never leave you. So it's, it just kind of drives you to keep going. You use it as a driving factor. Cause yeah, I, I'm like, all right, Marl's a design director, studio design director. He's up there. He's paid his dues. He's got nothing to worry about. And to hear that it's still something that crosses your mind from time to time, both gives me a sense of relief to be like, okay, cool. It's, it, it's normal. It's natural. And then B, it also kind of gives me a pause to be like, oh, you know, you're never done with it. You're never done facing down the eyes of that beast. Well, I say it just words of encouragement. I mean, I'm assuming people listening are coming from all areas of the industry. Some of them may not even have started and just, just listen, you know, don't get down on yourself. I'm just saying, like, even if you think you're not worthy, you are. Just keep doing it. Keep hacking away. Make cool shit. That's the most important part of it is just to make cool shit. My favorite question in interviews is is to say, so, you know, when did you transition from being a player of games to a, a maker of games? Mm. You know, because mm. just because you play it, that's cool. It's important to play. We all play. We all play. But making things, you know, I go back yes. to that artifact thing. And that's kind of what CMU instilled in me. 
I was in a computer science major, but then uh, you have to pick a minor at the school. So I picked art minor and I, I can't draw. I can't paint. I can't sculpt. I can't do fucking anything that an artist can do. But there were these courses in robotic art. Oh, there was a course called robotic art studio. There was a course called electronic media studio. And all of a sudden I'm like, our teacher was awesome. You could draw on this paper and then you Mm -hmm. put it on a copper sheet and drop it in some kind of acid and it would etch the copper. So you could create circuit boards. Oh, I did that. I made this really interesting. I thought it was interesting. Maybe it wasn't this circuit board that had an audio chip on it. And I had another circuit board that I I wired it into it and, and it fed the frequency to it and I have the circuit board pattern I modeled off after a virus. I looked up what a virus looked like and I made it look like a this is a highbrow art, man. It was like the virus was infecting. And then I had this thing rotating. And I was like, well shit, how do I put wire? How do I connect two circuit boards with rotating? So I made like a, a rod coated in copper with a metallic brush. Yeah. So it kind of just as the as it rotated, the brush was always in contact with the rod. Okay. And this thing just made this god-awful fucking high, high-pitched frequency noise. And that was one piece I did. We did another piece that was a huge installation, a huge a fountain in the middle, and there was water pouring out of it. And then we, we built our homemade pressure pads around the fountain, literally homemade. It was just like this mesh with, with aluminum foil, and if you step on it, it would, the foil would contact. And then depending on the speed that people walked around the fountain, we would vary the lights the intensity of the lights, and this again, highbrow art, is like trying mm-hmm. to manipulate your perception of time based on how fast you walked around the fountain. And the fountain had like, it was like a sundial because it was casting a shadow. And then the whole thing went to fucking shit. There's water in the, who, what, whose bright idea was it to put fucking water next to electronics? I don't know. But the, <laughs> fucking, the fountain would overflow, it would short out the fucking pressure pads. Anyway, this is the kind of shit that I'm doing in, as art. But it was was in technology. Yeah, I was making shit. I was seeing how people interact with it. And that was really just amazing. And you're learning, right? You're learning learning what what mixes well together. How can you use existing materials and applications to build something? But look, the biggest part about CMU was I graduated 1999. And at the very same time, this graduate program was starting. It's called the Entertainment Technology Center, started by uh, Randy Pausch and Don Marinelli. Randy was a computer science professor, and Don was a, a professor of drama. And they had the idea of creating a new graduate program. So at my senior year of college, I audited Don's class. I audited it because I was like, oh, I got so much other classes. But I, anyway, I went to his class, and it was really very interesting. It was called The Dramatic Structures of Interactive Gaming. I was wondering, like, how does the drama factor in? What does the drama teacher want to bring to this program? Well, okay, we yeah, you're about to answer that. Yeah, you're analyzing all these games down to, like, Aristotle's poetics and other classic dramatic structures and seeing how those philosophies, those techniques were being applied to gaming. And then at the same time, this program came on. So I, I applied to it. I didn't even know if I was in or out of the program come graduation day. I was like, I'm either going to, and I didn't get to have a job. I I had interviewed with IBM, Adobe, all these other computer science places, but no job. And so I was, oh shit. But I got in. I got in and it was, it was seven of us all from CMU for the, for the first year of the program, they wanted everyone from CMU to be the first program. So I got in, that was great. And then I took a course. The first year of that program, I took Building Virtual Worlds, which is where I got to do that VR work. And so I got in there. I did such cool shit in VR. I was a vegan at the time. 
And again, I had a real art brain and I wanted to make statements. So we did a, <laughs> we did a virtual reality simulation of, of a slaughterhouse. Oh, yeah. That's usually how I've, I've danced in front of the border of vegan, right? Is usually all it takes is like, oh, let me go see how my food or my animals are treated yeah. to come onto my plate. That's usually what it takes to, to make that jump. Well, you are in this simulation, you are the cow. So you put That's the effective. headset on. And oh you just you just see like the, the cow in front of you's butt because you're like all like in this stockade kind of thing, and you're oh. being herded to this um, well to death through the the rod that they shoot into their brain. Could you do anything to like survive, or was just an experience? Well, it was this weird anapromorphic kind of thing where the the cow actually had some ability to do. You were as you approached your moment of death, there were these this thing telling you to push the button, push the button. And this button opened the curtain. And for whatever reason, there was a, a field trip was at, at the slaughterhouse. And, and you opening the curtain revealed the horror of the slaughterhouse to this field trip of school children that were there. So you open the curtain. They got to witness the reality of, of the slaughterhouse. And now it's this moment of time. I'll never forget. We were demoing this VR experience to the class. And uh, we were using this software called Alice, which is... Um, it was, it was pretty early back then. So this thing was prone to bugs. It was prone to kind of corruption. Things would go crazy. So uh -huh. literally as we pushed the button, the whole freaking simulation just fucked up. And the camera started popping to all these crazy places. The animation states got all crazy. It reminded me now, you know, um, you know that movie Event Horizon? Yes. And do you know that yes. like that kind of like super trippy scene near the end where it just goes, it goes fucking manic? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's kind of how it felt like, and I thought well, this is even better. This is, this is even better than what we had programmed because this moment of death was just like fucking insanity. And you you couldn't have built that if you had wanted, right? Like it needed no. to be a bug or a glitch to realize the real truth or the horror. Not at all. But oh it was it was also we were doing the highbrow VR stuff. I did that for a year. So now comes an incredible pivotal time in my career, which is. Between year one and year two, Angel Studios came out to the campus. So Julie okay. was our HR person. She came out to campus and just did like, you know, here's Angel Studios, we're hiring. And Don, our professor, he's a real schmoozer, super schmoozer. After her talk to the whole university, went up to her and said, hey, I got this ETC graduate program. I got seven incredibly bright students and would you like to go out to dinner with us and so he took her and us out to dinner and we just you know we met we met each other and like oh hi hi give us your resumes and so then gdc came about soon after so it must have been like march and what I, year was this this must have been 99 could have been 2000 yeah yeah and uh i went to gdc obviously as i walked up to the booth I'm like, hi, Julie, you remember me? We went out to dinner, <laughs> right? That Those connections help. So I handed the CV. Uh -huh. I got the uh, interview scheduled. And so then I went, I flew out to San Diego. What was the role? The role was, this is the funny thing. I don't think there was a role other than- Oh, in, wow. Other than intern. The program was brand new. So we were always looking for internships, you know, to, to do in the summer in between the years. So it was just intern. In fact, my first- Interview that was with Michael Limber, who was the creative director for the studio, but mostly art, like like the lead artist. And I remember showing him my my reel, 
was on a CD-ROM. I think I used like a Macromedia Director to uh, to make yeah, this, Macromedia. this CD-ROM. And I was actually dabbling in, in 3D modeling at the time. So I showed him like, you know, here's my cow VR thing. We did this other like, film, <laughs> film noir piece that I thought was pretty good. And I had some other 3D models and other things. And I showed him this stuff and I'm talking. But my art's pretty crappy, right? I'm not a very good artist. Mm-hmm. He actually turned to me in this interview. He goes, uh, you're a game designer. And I was like, oh, I am? I, first time I heard, <laughs> first time I heard, you know, I'm thinking art programming, art programming, right? Yeah. Majored yeah. in so, programming, minored in art. Yeah. The idea yeah. Of, that there was someone who was called game designer was like, I was like, oh, he's like, you should go talk to Fred Marcus, our game design director. He's downstairs. And so he kind of walked me down. He was like, Fred. And so I went out to lunch with Fred, talked a lot about games and you know, we'll make games good. And then, yeah, he, he said, okay, let's go. You're, you're hired for the intel. I'll never forget. I went back to the Holiday Inn the, with, the, with the windmill by the flower Carlsbad? Fields. Yeah, Carlsbad. Yeah. By, the, by the flower fields, right? By the freeway. Yeah. That's where yeah, I stayed. Yeah, yeah. Right? I remember calling my mom. Mom, I got my first job you know, Ooh. in gaming. It was a super emotional time. Yeah. Now, yeah, like – yeah. Like, so they, they told you verbally when you went and spoke to, was it Fred? Yeah. Okay. It was Fred. You spoke I, to Fred. I, yeah. It was like a one-on-one thing. You spoke design. Like, what was the general gist of the conversation? All about Nintendo games. I cheated a little bit. I cheated a little bit. It's, it's time for honesty. I wonder why you think that. Yeah. One of the other seven who I went to GDC with, he had interviewed a week prior and he had told me, he said, hey, Fred loves Nintendo games. And I was like, well, shit. So do I. So it was easy. It wasn't really cheating. I mean, no, it was honest. no, that's what I wanted like you, to you, talk to him. I was like, no, oh, maybe I'll talk about Nintendo games. <laughs> so, that's, that's an easy topic for a lot of us, man. And, and yeah, like you had some insight, right? Which is this is no different than like getting the study guide for the do exam your research, or something you know, like that. This is a do simple your research. If you go to an interview, just look up who you're talking to. Always when you speak, think of how that person is, what they're thinking about. You just have to know your, your list. And, and if you're a game designer making games, you have to have empathy for your audience. It's not about you. You have to know who you're talking to and who's and what they're thinking. So, Yeah, because this, this person ultimately is like trying to look for someone that they can bring on to create an experience that they think is compelling for the mass market. I mean, right? You did your research. And it turns out that it's like, yo, Nintendo games are mass market. We want to make something in that space, right? You may not know this, but Angel Studios, right before I joined, worked with Nintendo. They were I part do not of, the, know this. of the dream team on the N64. You remember that term? They used it. They were, they were working with all these different studios trying to make – they were doing like a little car game or something. They ended up got canceled. They, the project that Angel worked on never made it to market. But they had worked with them, and Fred had come from Ubisoft. And even when I worked with Fred, he'd always talk about the the three C's. I thought it came from Nintendo, but now I see Ubisoft talks about it. So I think it might have come from Ubisoft. Three C's: control, camera, and character. This, yeah, this is the thing. It's the thing. I, I never heard about it until I went up to work in Montreal, and pretty much the entire culture of game development is derived from Ubisoft in that town. And they hired for, hey, you want to be a 3C designer? I was like, I've never heard of this before. What is that, right? And yeah, controls, cameras, and character, it's a thing. For the longest time, this is what I thought game design was, like only. I mean, it's there's obviously way more to it, but you got to nail those 3Cs or nothing else matters. Because it's a game about input. It's, it's not movies. It's a game about fucking input and feedback. Right, that's yeah, what yeah, yeah. the game is. So you're for the most part control a character, 
control the camera or maybe you don't control it, in which case the computer mm-hmm. better do a good job controlling it. I remember those early 3D games were so damn hard and even kind of off-putting a lot of times, right? Like you were fighting the camera, you would get it stuck in a place where you couldn't see the character and then you're getting punched or hit by the enemies, right? And, yeah. and this either made your game or broke your game, right? Like, oh, why am I going to play this when I could play Mario 64, for instance? Yeah. And if you go back, go back to play Mario 64, the camera's actually not as good as you remember it. <laughs> I mean, it's brilliant. Don't get me wrong. But since Friends then, time. and you continue to refine, you know, Ocarina of Time, a little better. Yeah. Right? Yes. Now you go play 3D or whatever, Mario Galaxy, or it's even better. But yeah, that yep. was that was the gist of it. Actually, so let me tell you this story about my first week at Angel. It's, it's, okay, and th- so this is, you got the job, you're in the hotel, you call your mom, you tell her, mom, I got the job doing the thing I've been trying to do my whole life. That's right. Finally, wrap it up, and we go out to we because it was, it was uh, some of my classmates also got internships at different places, Disney, okay. Disney up in L.A. So we literally did the Route 66. We drove from Pittsburgh to San Diego all the way. Wow. All the way. We're, we're stop- we went through, the, you know, through Kansas. We went through the Rocky Mountains, Utah, the, the Great Arches National Park. I saw so much of America. It was, it was a fantastic time. This is a paid internship. But pay. like no relocation, right? It's like get your butt out there. Did they, did they pay? They they paid a little bit. I remember getting these. Yeah, I had all boxes full of my textbooks, so they definitely paid. And they paid for that, and I think I okay. shipped my car. I think they paid to ship my car. They paid a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. You did get some help. Yeah. Okay. So I get there right day one of the job. I'm like, hey, what do I do? They gave me a. It was such a weird thing. They gave me a big cardboard box full of artwork. And they said, we'd like you to sort this artwork. And I'm like, okay. So I'm looking at the artwork. Some of it's for like games that, you know, it's concept art, sketches by artists. So I'm just, I did it. I'm looking at this artwork. It's cool. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And this might've been day one. It's probably, maybe it was the end of the week. But I remember asking myself, this is weird, man. This is not what I thought I'd be doing. This is not what I want to do. So I literally remember taking the box and it probably didn't play out that way. If they made the movie, this is what it looks like. But it, maybe, I don't know. I, walked in, I literally walked into the, the HR's office, Julie, because I, you know, I knew her. And I kind of like dropped the box in her desk. At least that's how I picture it. Dunk. And I said, I don't know what you thought I should be doing, but this isn't it. This is not what I want me to do. And honestly, Diaz, this, this could have been the shortest fucking interview ever. This could have been, and that's the end of my story. And that's the end of my story. <laughs> that was my first and only day in the game industry. Foot in the door and the foot quickly out of the door. Yeah, It just shows you when, I'm pretty arrogant nowadays, but I was a real arrogant bastard back then. And so I thought, fuck this, I'm, that's not what I want to do. I want more yeah, of that. Yeah. And look, uh, you know, bless her, she, she took it really well. And she actually went to, I think she went to Fred and kind of said, look, he's not, he doesn't want to do this. What can he do? And so... What, I, what happened was Fred came to me and said, hey, can you go and play these cars? So he was finishing Midtown Madness 2. For, okay. for my, they, were doing mid, they did Midtown Madness 1. It's kind of their claim to fame. The whole open world racing you know, was brand new. And they were working on, on number two. So he gave me, he said, go ahead and play these cars and you know, let me know what you think about the handling. So I went through all the cars and I took notes on how the car should feel, which ones were that and this forth. And I guess he liked it because he then invited me into his office. He had a very small office. It was like a closet, but it had a, a view to the courtyard. It was very nice. Okay. But he literally, like, I was, I think I was at the same desk as him, just next to him. So he, he moved me into this little office. And I'll tell you, John, this was the most rewarding two to three months ever because we were finishing this game. And I equate it to 
an apprenticeship. Yeah. I, I felt like he was teaching me how to forge a sword. Mm-hmm. We were banging away on and so I would tune cars, I would tune races. I tuned the mouse controls for Midtown Madness too. If you ever play by the mouse and you think, oh, this feels amazing. That's <laughs> that's your handiwork. My handiwork. But we, you know, I learned real quick how like 80% of the work happens in, at the last 20% of the project, especially for designers. The frustrating yes. thing about designers is that you often have to wait for all the other disciplines to do their work before mm-hmm. you get to go in there and, and, and tune it and balance it. Is the tuning programming? Like, are you in a text editor of some sort dialing in numbers? No, it's manipulating numbers. So it's manipulating, you know, variables that the programmer, you you know, if you have the time, you talk to the programmer about what you want exposed that Mm -hmm. that you can tweak, but you ultimately are tweaking numbers, ideally in real time, you know, while the game is running. So you can, you can feel your impact. I know the tools by the time I got there, right, 2010, I've always thought that a strength for that studio is the strength of the tools, right? Our iteration time is insanely fast compared to what I've seen in other places, right? Like I think people that work in Unity and Unreal don't really know what it's typically like, right? Like they kind of have a similar sense of, oh yeah, I can tune this thing while the game is running and feel the effects. It's not like that at a lot of places that have their own proprietary tech. I don't know how games are made without it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of waiting. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, no, it's absolute pain. Even in Unity, if I relaunch the build and it recompiles everything, I, I, I cannot. You're right, it's 21, 20 years later and they still haven't figured that out, but it's, it's so fucking... You had that. You had that early, had that. early on. I had that yeah. early on. It made a huge difference. It's the same thing we worked on at Rock. Back then, it was called Age, Angel Game Engine. Angel Game Engine. Oh, okay. Okay. When it, yes, we added an R for what? Rockstar, I don't know, Agile Game Engine? I don't know what it was. What yeah, they... they I, I knew it as the Rockstar Advanced Game Engine. Advanced? But I, no, Age yeah, Angel. It oh. was Age... <laughs> Man, talk about reappropriation. Just like, all right, we're just going to take yeah. this, make it our so, own. Yeah. I Trial by fire, man. I We finished that game in three months or, you know, not we. I, I barely had a contribution. I'm, I'll be mm-hmm. honest, you know, I'm, I'm helping finish, but I'm learning so much. And then a huge opportunity came, man, was Midnight Club 1 shipped soon after, along with Smuggler's Run. Those were the launch titles on the PlayStation 2. And the lead designer on Midnight Club 1... He's also a programmer. He's like kind of the lead programmer. Damn. I think he went to go do Transworld Surf, if I'm not mistaken. But he, he he went off a midnight club. So this opportunity came. And Fred's like, go ahead. You can be lead, essentially. But, wow. But, but there was a big problem. Let's not forget that I wasn't there for employment. I was there as an intern. I was there for an intern. I was there for a summer internship. So I was due to go back to school in August, September. Yes. And I'm like, oh my god, no! You know, I'm, I'm I have an opportunity to be lead game designer on a game, and I have to go back. So I actually contacted Don at the school. I contacted the school. I'm like, please, I almost felt like begging. Please, can I continue working here? They said, yeah, you can turn an internship into a co-op. So you're getting credits. Yeah. So for the whole second year of the program, one, I'm paying tuition. Okay. Ah. <laughs> so, uh, okay. okay, so, uh, yeah, you can see That's like it. yeah. Everything in life, it always comes down to money. 
So anyway. yeah, I was like, I was like, gee, that's awfully nice of them. No, They're going to no. give you credits for no. the time you spend working. I was oh, like, no, yeah. no, we you're still paying them tuition. tuition. What I did was I, I went back to Pittsburgh once a quarter. So four times I flew back to Pittsburgh and did a little prezzo about what I was working on. And so it's very valuable, right? Everyone at the school is just getting real, like, this is what it means to make games. This is what it means to tune the car. And let's be real, right? Like, that's the type of stuff that increases enrollment numbers, right? Like, CMU knows what they're doing, right? Because they're like, oh, yeah, look, this guy's working for Rockstar making these games. I want to go through the same program he went through, right? Because I want the same same exact opportunity. They always view their program as a professional program. Um, And even to this day, they they have a great internship and co-op thing going on there, 20 years strong. So I like to think that I helped launch that part of the program. Shout to you for keeping that bridge strong and, and reaching back, right? Like I, I try to put myself in those shoes and, you know, I think like on one extreme end of the spectrum, I would have been like, you know, goodbye, done paying tuition. I don't need you guys. I got this job. This is what I want to do. I'm, I'm taking it, right? Like, yeah, so- maybe, maybe I should have done that. I would have saved me <laughs> 50 grand. but i I like i like the way you did it right like you preserve the bridge i bet you have strong contacts over there i do i feel i learned so much at that school i did so much at that school and it's it's part of me but now that's part of now it's all about working at angel so this is just a huge opportunity and look again i i I said before my time at angel my time at rockstar was really special for me because you know you hear you hear this all the time nowadays about like, oh, we, we feel like a family, like this company, we're a family here and all that word family. It's often a lot of bullshit. But mm-hmm. at, at Angel Studios, it really, it really was a family. I mean, it's called Angel Studios because this, the CEO is Diego Angel. When you go, we have- <laughs> I never got to meet him, man. It's one of my biggest regrets. Oh my god! Well, you never, you never forget Diego when you meet him. He's an absolute character. A lot of, a lot of us say, you know that uh, commercial about uh, what Dos Equis, the most interesting man in the world. He was a lot, a lot like that. It's based on him. He's a Dos Equis guy. It's based on him. He'd go around usually on Fridays, you know, handing out uh, tequila. Oh yes, he's already won my heart. Patron or 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 Don Hul- Don Julio, tequila. But he was very insistent, and I love him for this because. I actually hated tequila shots. My first time throwing up was on that fucking Jose Cuervo crap. Oh, yeah. Bottom shelf stuff, man. Bottom shelf stuff. But, you know, shoot tequila, shoot tequila. The whole, oh. like, suck the lime and suck the, the salt. I hated it's that shit. Mess. I hated shooting it. He poured the tequila and he goes, no, no, no. Sippy whippy. Sippy whippy. <laughs> I'm like, oh. He's like, this is, you know, good. You sip it. All, now all my life. I just sip, 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 sip. There little, you go. Little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit of time. It- it's like a wave, right? Like you, you kind of ease into it, right? You let the warmth kind of come over you as yeah. opposed to like, yeah. you know, pedal don't to the metal. The don't burn the throat. Just let it roll over your lips, roll over the tongue. It's a real family thing. Like Fridays, we drink a little bit and then we'd end up at Diego's house. Oh. A lot of parties were at the houses and you're there with the families. With significant others, with kids. Significant others. My girlfriend, who's my wife now, I met her there. She was there. His family's there. I used to go to concerts with them. We used to. We went to see Santana. I used to go to raves <sighs> with Carlos with Santana. Boy, Carlos Santana over at, oh, at Irvine. Wow. I went to raves with his daughter, with his daughters and and, and their friends. You know, up in um, Indio. You saw Nocturnal Wonderland. Watching oh, when you're Nocturnal. when you're finally in California and you see the sun rise over these palm trees in the desert at a desert rave 
it's this magical kind of like I've seen it in movies and now I'm here feeling it yeah. that gives California a really special feeling. Great place. When I made it to California, right? Like, uh, you know, we're both East Coast people, right? Usually you're one type of person, right? You're an East Coaster, go, 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 hustle and bustle, place to be, things to do, or you're West Coast, right? Like laid back, mm. chill out, mm. enjoy the scenery, right? Smell the roses. But it, there is something in the air and in that bright ass damn sun that it, it definitely hits you when you get to that gold coast of California and and I, I can only relate at a very small scale, but I'm picturing the desert, right? Like no buildings, nothing in your way, right? And that sun is kind of coming up. Yeah, the whole the whole night, man. It was the promised land. That's how I, I thought of it was we're, we're heading out to the promised land. You know, you go to school in Pittsburgh. It's cold as shit in Pittsburgh. It's snowy. I was like, once I graduate, I'm going to California. Yeah, getting <laughs> out of here. Goodbye. So Angel Studios, it's not bullshit. You guys really are a family, right? Like a team that you make money with, you build these amazing titles, and you hang out with, you're around your loved ones, you're partying, you're celebrating, right? This is what builds teams and as well creates that kind of family rapport. I mean, you're working with these people day in Mm -hmm. and day out. At Midnight Club, was you knew we had something special because we'd all kind of stay late playing it. Oh, do we would tell. play. We would play capture the flag all the time, and it was so funny to me because the programmers were just in a slightly separate room, and there's always a little bit of lag, you know, when you play uh-huh. capture on the network. And I remember them. I hear them howling over here, and then like half a second later on my screen, they would like, "Oh fuck, he took my flag." Flag stolen. Yeah, yeah. flag <laughs> stolen. <laughs> we played a lot of ping pong back in the warehouse. So when we finally, when Rockstar finally made table tennis, I was like, "Oh yeah, we all." We all love playing that shit. Back in you, the you guys are pros already. So, so you're you're in Midnight Club two as a lead designer, having right. come fresh off kind of your like hardcore apprenticeship with Fred, learning the ins and outs of design and tuning, and then you're. Th- I feel like this you're throwing into some pretty intense flames to be like lead design. This was intense. This was. I saw it as a real opportunity, and I'm so thankful that they gave me a lot of freedom to just make the game as I thought it should be you know I mean all my teammates putting in an exuberant amount of work you know with their help to make it what it is but it's it's still a very special thing because a lot of the concepts that I brought to that game I felt like it gave that game some identity even to this day like I said I go back and play it there's a Mm -hmm. feeling there's a vibe to Midnight Club 2, Midnight Club 3 with the burnout mechanic, with the yes. slipstream, slipstream turbo, with even the way we tune the AI, with the branching paths and the shortcuts that everyone takes with the intensity of that racing. Can I tell you, I so I'll be honest, right? I was still in college when Midnight Club 2 was out. So I had, you know, no money. And so I definitely had to bootleg Midnight Club 2. You know, I'll chalk it under kind of college research and reference. But that game, there's two things that stuck out about it. Probably three, I remember. So I'm going off of like nostalgia, what I recall. I remember the openness, right? Like up until that point, every racing game was kind of linear, start to finish, follow this track, memorize the track, and be the first one across the finish line. So this one was crazy because it was like checkpoints in all different directions and get to them however you can get to them. And I'm I'm winning, then I'm losing, and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to follow this damn AI. I'm going to f- learn the pass they take, mm-hmm. or I'm going to invent my own pass. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm feeling it. I'm mastering it. And the bosses were awesome, right? Like the characters yeah, were super that. memorable. 
I love the slipstream turbo, right? Like those little like speed trails and you're trying to kind of follow the line and then kind of zoom past them. But I remember making it to the final dude and not being able to finish, man. That it was too hard. It was too hard. This is, you know, it's probably my fault. All those things are my (laughs) fault. You're influenced, right? I'm always influenced by what you know. Mm -hmm. And Mega Man 2 and Ninja Gaiden 2, if Ninja Gaiden 1 is is also, you know, um, Sid Meier or whatever, he always, he defines games, what, like a series of interesting choices, something like that. Mm -hmm. My definition of games is a set of challenges Uh and then a tool set. You give the, you give the person or the player a tool set to, to, like to overcome those challenges, almost like Batman's utility belt. That's what I think of it as. It's like, okay, here's the challenges. So like Super Metroid comes to mind, you know, like, oh, now I have the ice beam and I can do all kinds of this or that. Mega yeah. Man 2, right? Now I got the gun and now I can use it. Again. Even that the throwing star Ninja Gaiden 2. These are the tools that you have to combat everything else. So that's where Slipstream Turbo and stuff comes from. It comes from actually this psychological philosophy, and I learned it in college. So again, I always go back to what you learn and know. The theory of, of flow. Are you familiar with the theory of flow? Is this like getting into flow where there's a level of like everything else kind of disappears and kind of time slows down and you're just kind of operating at like a thousand percent capacity? I think of it as like a runner's high. Here's the truth of it. You, you, you take a graph and on mm-hmm. one axis, you plot difficulty, how difficult the task is. And on the other axis, you plot your ability to combat that. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a state where shit... This is way too hard for me. It's harder than my ability, right? And that's frustrating. Yes. And yes. there's the other side was actually I'm way more capable than than the challenge. It's, it's boring. Yes. It's boring for me. Another one of my favorite games of all time, Tetris Attack on the Super Nintendo. Oh, boy. This is a game that's so fucking addictive. My roommate in college started playing it because he, he saw me playing it and his girlfriend started playing it. And they played it so much. They played it all night into the morning that they didn't go to class anymore. And they dropped out of school. They dropped out of school. <laughs> they didn't go to class and they, they dropped out. This game is so fucking addictive. And I was infatuated because I was learning about flow at the same time as this where you're getting all this trash put on you. Oh my God, I'm so frustrated. But when you clear mm-hmm. the stack, you know, if you, t- if you make a match that touches it, it pops, it goes pop, 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 pop. And it turns into playable blocks that mm-hmm. then drop on you. And if you set it up right, you're hurting. Oh, you're, you're manic. You're setting it up right. All that shit that drops and you just made a huge combo the other way. Yep. So yep. you go you from this moment it. of extreme frustration. Oh, I'm about to do, I'm about to die. To extreme, the other side of boredom and power, where oh my god, I just sent a whole shit of trash to the other side, and then it occurred to me that racing was very similar because when you're in a position of weakness, you're trailing in a race, you're quite frustrated, mm-hmm, and I found mm-hmm. that 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 movement of that one quadrant to the other quadrant, you're kind of you're kind of traversing the trough of flow in between. You, you had a ment- like a physical, whether it's dopamine or, or whatever that chemical is, you get a rush in your head that you're, tre- you're going from that moment of frustration to that moment of power. And so that's what Slipstream Turbo tried to do. Just try to take, hey, I'm behind, yes. and now I'm in the front. And so I saw that element, and that's what rubber banding does. That's what all these kinds of mm-hmm. things try to do is to try to create these scenarios and situations where you can exhibit that elusive rush 
And I guess that's probably the thing that Midnight Club gives that some other games don't is that your butt cheeks kind of clench. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I I love it, right? Because like if you take the spectrum of racing games, and on the one end you have super accessible, very loose and fun Mario Kart, and on the other end you have like super serious simulation as real as possible, like Gran Turismo or something like that. I find Midnight Club excels because it's kind of in the middle there somewhere, right? It's like it's kind of arcadey, it's actiony, but there is a level of, of mastery and control and learning and and figuring out the right lines and still having fun. And, and there's a bit of randomness, right? Like skill will still triumph, unlike Mario Kart, right? Like Mario Kart, mm. skill doesn't always guarantee victory. I, I found there was a great balance there. Yeah, it was it was really fantastic. Two games there, two and a half years each, five years of doing racing. I was talking with Benja and Jeff Junio, and I was like, hey guys anything you want me to throw at morrow as mm. we're talking and a couple of questions they had right it was about midnight club was your baby for so long yeah what are some of the directions that you would have liked to have seen that franchise go towards i wish they kept making them <laughs> <laughs> they boom yeah it's as simple as that like there's no reason that thing couldn't uh, keep going. No, i understand why they didn't it makes sense they got grand they got grand theft auto and I'd love to see it come back. I think it would do well, and it's, it'd be fun to, to play. Where would I like to see it go? I'll tell you one thing. It was a big surprise, right? And, and I say this as a player, not, not even as a developer. I just Every time I go up and fire it up Midnight Club online, remember it was one of the first online titles for the PlayStation 2, the old network adapter you threw in the back and you could play it online. Every time I log in to play, I found that the players weren't actually racing that often. The game has like a race editor, so players can make races. But anecdotally... Because we didn't have analytics back then, so I didn't. I wasn't able to even look at the analytics. I'm not even sure if this is true. But anecdotally, the majority of the players were in cruise mode, and I would go in, log in in cruise mode, and just find them kind of hanging out and and talking to each other, often about you know what their cars look like, you know what the, how they're customized, and sporadically maybe one of them would just start driving through the city and the rest would kind of follow. So there's all this kind of emergent gameplay that was arising. So I think if I were to take on, you know, Midnight Club today, I would look at this kind of social, illegal street racing car culture. There's a lot of lot about socializing and, and getting together and, and looking at each other's rides and customizing. And obviously now with the metaverse and even NFTs being kind of owning customizations, I think there's an opportunity there to go in there. And, and one more thing about surprises is checking in on how your players are playing the game and seeing what your players are doing. Every game developer should do that because really that's who should kind of drive the conversation right? and seeing how your players are interacting with what you do and kind of where they want to go with it should influence the product that you give them. And so it was really refreshing to be surprised by that, but I also see it as an opportunity to keep bringing Midnight Club to the modern age about social meta customization, expression, all those things are, are ripe. Talking about someone who adapts with the time, stays current, has his pulse on the trends in the industry, right? I could see that. I could totally see that today. It wasn't too long ago. I was out by the Space Needle and there was a, a meetup, right? In the parking lot of like a 7-Eleven or a McDonald's around here. And, and that's totally what they're doing. They're just following each other to a destination, cruising. Yep. Pull in, park, get it all in their aligned spots, and, and everybody just walks around in each other's cars, talk about, hey, what's new? Would you add? How does that sound? You know, oh, I like that. Oh, then they gather inspiration, then they can go feed the community that way. I, I love it. 
yeah, there's a, there's a nice angle, nice angle to look at. How do you go about creating those huge features, right? Those powers, you know, as we talk about it, right? I can picture myself sitting in a meeting and be like, okay, Roar has to do this and it has to give the player this feeling and this is how it should work, right? Or how was it on that team about bringing this feature from, you know, from a thought to an idea to the screen? Like what's what's the pipeline? I, I never wrote a single document in my 10 years at, at Rockstar. There's no writing. No. I would sit down with a programmer and I would explain what I think it should be. Maybe I did write a document. I think for Slipstream, I drew a diagram. <laughs> so, hey, diagrams are the way at, at the very least, right? I would sketch. It's kind of a napkin sketch idea, right? This is what I'm thinking. This is the kind of the, the way the, the trail should look like or whatever, but just basic enough to communicate the idea to a few people, programmer and artist, and then you just fucking build it. Mm-hmm. So you build it fast and dirty and you play with it and then from there you 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 ask yourself what's right or wrong it's so we are so good at playing stuff and saying ah, i don't like this yeah. ah, right or like oh my god this feels perfect so play it tweak it and and iterate and revise don't get stuck in the mud trying to design things perfectly on paper it'll, it'll never happen everything mm-hmm. changes once it's in your hands so I'm always a pro at doing that. But again, look, this is an environment where time is not necessarily, you know. <laughs> time and resource have no meaning in this space. I got to remember that it becomes a different thing when you have different constraints. But back then, that's how we did it. 100%. A lot of people always inquire, They're like, you know, what's the secret sauce? How, how, did, how do you guys do it back then on these types of games? And it's like, that's the caveat you have to be open about. It's like, hey, the way it works here, you have to accept upfront at time and money or resources are not a part of this picture. It helps to have references. So when you communicate things, you can, you know, I think even when zone came out, I think Max Payne had been out. So when I'd be saying, Oh, it's bullet time for cars. Oh yeah. Okay. Fine. It's bullet Mm. time for cars, right? Max Payne (laughs) bullet time. I get it. There you go. And then you get it. So it's nice to have references. So you have a shared understanding. Plus one on the references moral. And, and so that's something I always like to emphasize to people is like, you want to make games, you got to play a bunch of games and you got to play games that you don't want to play necessarily, right? Because you have to be able to pull inspiration or reference, or at least know like, this doesn't feel good because of this, or this was tried in this other game and look at what it produced, right? Let's learn from that. And, and let's make sure to rate that. And watch other people play games. Oh, Yes. The Tetris Attack stuff, I was always infatuated by watching people play for the first time. Because mm. that game, you move a cursor around, you hit the button, it swaps. It's like a match three game. Yes. And people yes. would go and, and oh, they'd figure out how to move the cursor and figure out how to swap. And then they'd just start to do match three. And then later, they would learn about fours and fives. And then later, they're starting, oh, if this stuff drops, I can make that kind of combo. Yep. It was so interesting to watch people learn and see at what stage they picked up the different techniques. I don't think enough of us take advantage these days of Twitch, right? Like, can you imagine back mm. then if Twitch was around, right? Or just watching people stream a game, like the wealth of information that's accessible today is is ridiculous, right? Like you need full teams to to consume and research what's out there already. It's true. It's right. It's right there. It's taking. Yeah, I think that's a gold mine of of information, right? Like of you don't have you can you can't make the excuse like, oh, I don't have time to go play this thing. It's like, well, bullshit, go turn on a Twitch stream and watch someone play the game, right? Like get information from every source possible. Let's jump into Red Dead, man. 
Wild West. This is the Wild West. This is the project I got to work with you on. But again, I came in, I guess we were one or two years out from finishing. So you were in there from early, early on, five years of your life dedicated to Red Dead Redemption. I knew you as the mini game designer and not just to say, oh yeah, a couple mini games, like yeah. all the mini games, yeah, all, of them. <laughs> all of the ones, man. So this is horseshoe and poker and liar's dice, blackjack, liar's dice, oh, and five finger fillet, five finger fillet, arm wrestling, dueling. Yeah. Did you have, was dueling your game as well? I started it. Silas finished it, but I, I did start that's it. That's right. That's right. Oh man. I love, dueling was huge, right? Dueling is, is a staple of the wild west and all those other ones just, it just added to that fantasy of like, yes, I'm a cowboy on the I frontier know. and this is me all, making money. It all, all started with poker. It all started with poker. This is the meat of the conversation I wanted to have with you because I, so now I know a little bit more about your background, right? Like you started in racing games, started playing them, and then you kind of just carry that knowledge forward and you just grow in your expertise and understanding of the type of game that you're making and the mechanics and then what it and you know that 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 rush, right? That that speed and the joy that that brings. But I think Mauro, you have a key skill in being a master of researching the experience. Like I think with racing, you you, you dive headfirst into that thing, and with poker, <laughs> I felt like you live and breathe and, and dived into that world, right? Like I, I yeah. never got a chance. I don't think maybe there was a Christmas party where we had table games, and I might have sat at a table with you playing poker, but I don't think I ever went head to head with you. Thank goodness. I remember that one? I want a piece on <laughs> the raffle. I remember that now. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, look, Good times. It, I went on. After Midnight Club, I was like, okay, I've done racing for five years. I was going to go, I'm going to go join the, he was at that time, it was probably Red Dead um, Revolver 2 mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of thinking. But I, went, I wanted to go join the other team. Just something too, by the way, I was lead on, on Midnight Club, but then I gave up lead to go just be a senior kind of game designer on, on Red Dead. So I didn't care about title. I just wanted to, to do something different. And they already had a lead over there. I'm like, fine. And then I know the guy will work together. So I went over there. Was it Christian? Or? No, it was actually um, Dominic at that time. Before It was before Christian had come on. And I went over there and I, and I started by prototyping missions. A lot of the missions that we shipped with, I prototyped. That's what I was doing. I came in there to finish up the missions and, and you know, put the, put the rock star spit polish on there and get them across the finish line. A lot of like the the Fort Mercer Trojan horse thing, the uh, the burning barn with the, with the horses, the uh, the snake oil the snake oil merchant with the the plant Ooh. in the crowd. You know, it's it's funny. My my father was really into Charles Bronson, and he's in a lot of westerns. And so growing up, I would see a lot of westerns all the time. He just watched them. But the the snake oil merchant came from. I mean, snake oil merchants in a lot of westerns. They're everywhere. Yeah. Classic but character. I actually thought of that music video with Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney. He say, say. Oh. He did that video with McCartney, and there's a snake oil. It's about them scamming people, you know, going around. And I was like, I was like, I was like, oh yeah, snake oil merchant. That'd be such a cool fucking mission to have, you know, John in the crowd and be like, be a plant for the thing. And so yeah, was, and then it went on. Wow. To have it, it went. It, it goes on to have its own identity. That's the bitching thing about Rockstar is they, they, they flush out that character. It's not Paul McCartney in the, in the video. It's its own, it's its own character. It goes on to have a life of its own. But yeah, so this is an also an interesting thing about, there's a lot of luck in life, especially in, in game industry. Like you do kind of have to get lucky here and there 
to find your way. But it's important to kind of put in the work and be well prepared when life gives you that lucky opportunity. So whether it's that, hey, I have a portfolio when I got the job, here it is, I've done the work. But here I am five years later, and now I get to use some of that programming that I learned. You said, I wasn't programming on Midnight Club 2 or 3. I was just designing. So that whole computer science stuff that I know, mm-hmm. I didn't do for the first five years of my career. But then I go over to Red Dead, and I'm actually a pretty good programmer, or at least good enough. And I actually eventually helped train some of the Midnight Club guys when they came over. You know, uh, David Stinchcomb, I used to come over to my house. I used to teach him how to code, you know, and then he's over there doing missions and stuff. So, Shout out to Dave, man. Dave's yeah. an awesome human being. Yeah, he's fantastic. It was great fun. And so when I went over there, yeah, I'm like, hey, I can code. So I was doing mission prototypes. But poker was always in the back of my mind because we had been playing it, like I said, for five years, thanks to ESPN. Mm-hmm, you know, we were mm-hmm. playing it. Well, th- there's some stories, man. Like you guys have been playing poker on the MC days, man. I think uh, Troy made a nod. He wanted to talk about poker and the FBI <laughs> sitting across oh, yeah, from the, the Angel FBI. Studios building. <laughs> We used to play at lunch, you know, just a half hour, 45 minute game, but yeah. it's, it's sunny San Diego. So we thought, well, let's play outside, you know, on the, um, on the deck, on the, um, that, that patio. Actually, uh, uh, yeah. But it was across the way, a big complex it was across the way in the next building. So we would play there and someone at some point said, yeah, you know, the, the FBI building is like <laughs> right where you're playing. You're like, you know. I don't think they gave a shit. I think the, you know, it's not like we were taking a rake, but yeah. it, was, it was still funny that we were, you know, gambling. Yeah, we felt like we we're such badasses playing poker in front of the FBI. <laughs> I, I, there's something, yeah, there's something to be said for like, yeah, we work for Rockstar, makers of GTA, and we're doing, we're gambling in the same <laughs> building as the FBI. It, it could almost be a mission. Could I can yeah. see that being a mission. <laughs> but look, what what actually happened is, um. There was one night that I went home and played Gun. Gun, gun uh, had come out by uh, Activision. Because oh, that, was, that was like the first, that's the first West, Wild West game I remember playing. At least on, on you know, yeah, Xbox 360, absolutely. PlayStation 3. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, and I played it and it was, it's a cool game. But I got to the part where you play poker. And mm. it's, it's like, a, like a 2D kind of, reminds you like Flash back in the day. It was like a 2D version of poker, right? So it would take you out of the world and you play poker in, in 2D. I went back to my days at Carnegie Mellon and building virtual worlds in that cow VR. We did all those projects in two weeks. Every project we did back then was in two weeks. So I said to myself, you know what? I could probably, with the programming knowledge I have, and all I need is a table and, and a sit-down animation, and I just got to go ask the artist to do some card props. I was like, I think, yeah. I, could, I, think I could code poker to be in the world. Yeah, but you know? like I just had the camera kind of come over you and zoom down on the table. Yeah, I said we could probably do this in in the game, and so I I don't know what I don't remember what came first. I probably asked for cards, or maybe yeah. I asked for a sit down animation or an animation. And by the way, those cards, George George Davis is just a fucking brilliant job on the the art of those cards. One of my most coveted pieces of swag is, is the, the deck. deck of cards, the deck. Of oh cards. my gosh. Where's Do you have it? <laughs> I have the deck. It, that thing is prized. Like I won't even know. play with them. I don't play with no, them. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the box the box is kind of tattered now. Like yeah. it, it's traveled with me all over. Where the box is kind of tattered, but the cards are are pristine. Man, they got that nice kind of like cream wax over them, and like kind of the faded, you know, yes, numbers. Yes, shade on them, which is. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, I love I love what he did with 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 that art 
But yeah, dude, I just started hacking away. I started hacking away, and you know, pretty quickly we had something playable. And as soon wow. as people got to sit down and, and and play cards in the world, they're like, "Man, this is awesome!" Totally. You know? And we just built. We built from there. At some point, I mean, it's not rocket science. It's a fucking western. It's gotta mm-hmm. have poker. It's gotta have poker. It's so yes. Much- and, and and I love. I remember I inherited this mission. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if you started it or kind of put the put the skeleton in place. But it was the mission that introduces you to poker. You can play poker pretty early on in the, in the open world in Red Dead Redemption. But it was the mission where you sit across from. I want to say he was German or Austrian, right? The gunslinger, right? The gunslinger, yeah, Landon Ricketts. Mm-hmm. And um, you guys sit down and you're playing poker. And then, of course, in Western tradition. You're accused of being a cheat. Wow. And you have that. You have, yeah. That's you the have thing the about cheating, yeah. <laughs> And like, if you're going to have poker, you got to be able to cheat. <laughs> you got to be able to cheat, man. No, it's and, uh, yeah, yeah. I looked it up. And, and, like, being, and being able to, to, in true rock star open world fashion, right? Like, you can lose. Go ahead and lose all my money. But I have the free range to beat you up and get my money back from you as soon as we walk away from this table (laughs) (laughs) no that was really the fun part we had we had poker built and at some point yeah man we should cheat so i went i looked up well how do they cheat and then i saw this this mechanism this mechanical thing that Uh supposedly the cowboys would put under their sleeve and Uh they could hide a card they could steal Mm -hmm. a card right and that's oh, where it yeah. came. So I was like, oh, yeah, let's let's see if we can just like steal a car and hold it. And then you can use it, you know, whenever you want. This is why you see so many magicians and all that. Like, it's like, hey, roll up your sleeves, man. Show me your forearms. None of that shenanigans. I like it. Yeah, it all it all kind of plugged in at that point. Oh, you get called in cheating. You get the duel. It became a, a nice thing. But look, that was that was the, the catalyst that kind of started off everything. And then then it was like, yeah, just keep doing mini games. I remember we brainstormed mini games. I think it was Nick that said, Hey, have you heard of Liars Dice? I had never Zipman? heard of Liars Yeah, Zipman, I think it was. Zipman, yeah. You might come up with five finger too. Five finger five finger's good. I could play Five Finger for, for a long time, man. I don't know why. It was just one yeah. of those ones that's like I love that that rhythm you know, Simon Says type of game, you know? You know, at first, like, at first it wasn't uh, it wasn't fast. It was actually kind of slow. Just talk about iteration. It was it, w- it was just moving the hand and moving the thing. And then later we, oh, came, up, we it, came up to that pattern matching thing. Um, oh, it was, okay. It was Gordon that helped help me over get through that. And Gordon's Gordon. Such a, Gordon Hall, yeah. Such He's a, a great intuitive designer, man. He was fantastic. He's yeah. Just, yeah, absolutely. One, one of my favorite stories, I, I was never in the room. This is one of the stories I'm told is when he first got to Rockstar San Diego and, you know, he was in a meeting room, all the legal directors, and he's being shown the game for the first time. The way the story was told to me is that, you know, as any as any creative it's like, okay, hey, go see this world, go see our most beautiful building, go experience this mission or, you know, skip to this part in the story. Oh, see this cutscene, right? Ride the train, whatever. Or go, go, um, what do they call it? Like, uh, when you got to... You got to use the rope to like tie yeah, the horse. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently all he was doing was like equipping and unequipping the gun, like just equipping, unequipping, like, like holster, unholster and aim, holster, unholster and aim. And then the, that he would, he was doing this for like 20 minutes, just yeah. in a room, no, nobody talking, right? He, he just trying and just looking at it, be like trying to get a sense of it, right? What I like about this story is people come with all these expectations of like, okay, this is what this game needs to be. But I think this goes back to that 3C design aspect. Mm. 
of in a Wild West game, if your holstering and unholstering and equipping of your pistol and aiming feels off or doesn't feel tight and yeah. sound good and the animation's solid and it's not quick enough, yeah. then the rest of the game, you know, people, people will, it doesn't matter. That's the other thing about Rockstar, which again, details, mm. details, detail, everything fucking matters. Maybe I'll do a little story about college again. We okay. had this thing. We had to build an item that elicited you wanting to squeeze it. So I was like, okay, that's that's the goal. So I, I did this thing. It was kind of weird. didn't really work. But it had a PVC pipe. I cut it in half. I put a rod in between it with a bolt and a spring, thinking that yeah. you'd want to kind of squeeze these two things together. People actually ended up twisting it more than mm-hmm. squeezing it, which is interesting because it was the, the path of least resistance. The spring actually had more resistance. So people twisted it. That 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 was a learning. People will probably do the path of least resistance. But the, the biggest thing was that bolt, that axis that came through, I bought it at the school store. They had in Sharpie written on the top 26, some number for inventory. Every mm-hmm. night. I could care less. I didn't take it off. This thing, when it was passed around, all the kids, all the students there, all they were obsessed about was what that number meant. They were looking at this 26 on the bolt, thinking, what does that mean? What does that mean? And I, my, I took, it was a huge lesson for me. It took away that details matter, that, yes. uh, that details, if people get stuck on all these little details. So that, when I hear this Gordon story, that just reminds me of, it's about the details and any rock star game you play, you will notice the sum of all those details creates mm-hmm. a cohesive world. The, the attainment of perfection. The attainment <laughs> it's of perfection. Good, yeah. If it's in the game, it's intentional and it's been obsessed over, right? And like yeah. iterated on and, and carved the two up precise corner and edge. Gordon's the kind of guy when he went to go work with me on Five Finger Filet, what's the first thing he does? He grabs a fucking knife from the kitchen. (laughs) 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 I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm going to lose a finger. (laughs) He's like, let's play. Let's sit down. And he probably probably got a beer or something. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I love it. I was working on GTA doing tennis and I was like, ah, more of the same mini games. I should do something different. That was going to lend me to. Did you touch tennis? Were you the first point on tennis? Yeah, I, I prototyped it. Uh, pretty functional. I mean, yeah, not, no animations yet, but it, it, yeah. Oh, that's right, man. Oh my gosh. I don't even know. Do you know who finished it? Because I don't know. Did you ever get a chance to meet Robert Pearsall? Yeah, it sounds familiar. He was there. He was a programmer, wasn't he? Oh, you're thinking of Robert Percival. You're thinking of Rob <laughs> Percival. Yeah, yeah, sounds yeah. pretty. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Rob. So Rob Percival is definitely our physics programmer, and so Rob Pearsall came in as a designer on gta and, and i remember him because yeah it was basically tennis was his whole world he took that thing from single player to multiplayer i could not tell you what he did before or after i think he came over from thq or something like that interesting you started it he finished it and and i, and I love bridging those worlds right of like shout out to tom shepherd tom shepherd had a heavy hand in, in making the programming lineup so that ball propagated over the network right because it was a tiny tiny ball man yeah, and it was kind of flying back and forth and, and you know our physics at the time were pretty finicky it wasn't meant to handle something no, that small we network we networked poker in lives days but then that doesn't we do I, we never tried horseshoes for example so mm, yeah that would that's been. funny yeah i didn't even realize that that wasn't included in the, in the open world in the online open yeah, world. No, nothing physical these things are our history, right? The history of game development, man, and the people that founded this thing and carried it forward, you know, step by step, right? Like, I'm sure Midnight Club is going to inspire so many other games behind it, right? Red Dead and, and poker. You mentioned to me poker, and I have a quick gut reaction of like, 
you know, how yeah. much cash do I have on me? I'm down to sit down, you know, or. Did you ever see, uh, you ever see Watch Dogs? I never played it, but there were screenshots of Watch Dogs. The screenshots of their poker. I was like, oh, I feel honored. <laughs> that yes. I, I definitely inspired something there. Watch Dogs, I remember, I, I don't know if we were on GTA at the time or whatever, but I remember their E3 reveal of Watch Dogs. And I thought that was masterfully crafted, right? Like a, a lot of it was smoke and mirrors and, and, and pre-rendered video of like what they wanted to make that game. But all that to say, it was like, wow, they're hacking and the way you can control things and then drive and get in and get out. I love it. And the stealth element that, you know, I've always wished more of the Rockstar games had. Mm. But what do they say? Good artists... Artists borrow, great artists steals all that. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, that's a common moniker in this industry, man. And I'm all I'm all for it, man. Just give credit where credit is due. Like, where did just you remix, get inspired? Man. Just just be inspired and remix. Add something, add something of value. You know, change it up a little bit, and then you're moving things forward. That's it. It's like culture just repeats itself. So you Fashion. can borrow, you can be inspired, but it, it can't just be just a, a copy. Just add something to it. You know, remix. Mm. It just has to be, if you add to it, then it's uh, it's something special, something unique. And then it's moving things forward. Working at Rockstar, mm. and then you made the transition to go to Zynga, mm. right? So to, to anybody on the outside looking in, it's easy to look at that and be like, whoa, they are two opposites of the same coin. They do things completely different in the, in the market and the types of games they build and everything. And, it, and it's particularly interesting because the major announcement that just happened, right? Where Take-Two is set to acquire Zynga for like a nice... Nine billion bucks, which, depending on what you read, seems like a steal, right? That their their kind of share prices, even to what it was when they went public a decade ago. Honestly, hardest decision I've ever had to make because, like I said in the last hour, Rockstar Games was awesome for me. I really enjoyed working there. I enjoyed what they were doing. I enjoyed my contribution. I had no complaints, but it was in line with what I had been doing already. And I'm doing mini games again. It felt more the same. And then, of course. You know, I, I got poached, essentially. I, I got contacted by a recruiter from Zynga that said, hey, what, what do you think? And I was like, Zynga? I was like, well, you couldn't, you, you literally, could, if you write like a, you know, an opposites attract oil and vinegar kind of story, I think Rockstar and, and Zynga are, are that. They were polar, you know, I'm looking at Farmville had come out, obviously it was huge, but Cityville had also just come out. And so I fired up Cityville and so in its Facebook, right? Facebook was new and even iPhones are kind of new in our pockets. I tell you, it was, it's kind of cathartic. I woke up to the news yesterday, you know, and it's like, wow, you know, it's such a big part of my life in both companies merging. And then it makes you think, I'll say right off the bat, I actually think it's a really, really good acquisition. It makes a lot of sense because, you know, acquisitions happen for a number of reasons. One reason sometimes is to just kind of crush the competition. And I think if you look like Uber was kind of known to do that, like if any rideshare companies brought up, all of a sudden Uber bought them. It's kind of like, well, I'll buy you before you take our market share. We'll buy you. Okay, that's one. That's one way. Zuck does it all the time, right? It's like Instagram and WhatsApp. He snagged those up before they became a threat. Yeah, there, there's yeah. that one. But then there's, I think, the more more common one, which is to find, you know, multiplicative synchronicities, you know, is to actually see that this acquisition will, one, grow our business, but also take advantage in exponential ways what we do well and what, what we don't do well necessarily, mm -hmm. right? And so it kind of makes sense. And you see it all 
all the big uh, traditional publishers. It started back when Activision bought King, right? Everyone was like, well, I'm, oh, what are we going to do? And then even last year, Call of Duty Mobile was a big, it was a good, good success story for them. So you guys kind of start to see the fruits of that acquisition. I think the Take-Two Zynga thing is, is similar in regards to, well, mobile is very different than console development. And Zynga's shown that they're able to succeed in that market and, and increase. And, and everything Zynga's done in the last year or so with their acquisitions, with buying up some of those casual studios, with getting chart boost and as an ad platform, made it much more of an appealing takeover. So I think it makes a lot of sense. And then, so that's kind of what they do differently. But what they actually do really similarly is their appeal to the mass market. And that's something, you know, you know, when you look at GTA or Rockstar, they're so successful because they are actually able to, they have kind of the recipe for bringing games to, to many people, to many people, mm, all the, mm-hmm. the choices that they make in the theming, but also the controls and the camera and just kind of like how it plays and how easy it is to play and how simple things are. Like you look at RPG games or something, and then you maybe look at uh, something like San Andreas where it introduced some of those RPG elements, but mm-hmm. it's a very simple way. Zynga was similar, right, in how they approach Farmville and Cityville and kind of, and Pincus is on record of saying, look, I used to play poker and other games with my family and realize that games are for everybody. And so we're the real focus to make sure that Zynga products, Zynga poker and Farmville mm-hmm. were built, appeal to everybody. So I think in that way, they are quite similar, right? So even though their markets, even though maybe their demographics are different, the way they tailor their games to to appeal to as many people as possible is is really similar. So I actually see that kind of multiplicative synchronicity you know, being able to take shape here. So it, it'll be very interesting to see where they go. On the outside, they can kind of be very different, but they have similar goals and definitely aligned interests, right? To control as much market share as possible from their respective proficiencies. And if they can even slightly meet in the middle, that could be a heck of a powerful combination. You mentioned Activision King Blizzard, right? Which is a gigantic market share. You'd say probably a quarter of the gaming industry. And Mm -hmm. to see take two, which, you know, is not just the Rockstar portfolio, but it's also the sports games, At the Mafia, Bioshock, Borderlands. Borderlands. Borderlands is gigantic. Totally. Yeah. And, and the seeing mobile takes on those universes and IPs. I can totally see Borderlands causing havoc to, you know, those shared world shooters like Destiny and things like that. If they get to mobile, even, you know, Call of Duty Warzone and things like that. Absolutely. That's interesting when you mention it. I joined Zynga and I think the biggest difference initially was these games are live. And at the time, I think I joined Cityville and Farmville was live. So you come in and this is the first time I'm introduced to games as a service, right? Where you actually have a cadence of release, mm-hmm. right? Cadence of releases. And what that does, right, is, is that, remember we talked about the, the, the triangle, you know, you have time, quality and money. And so just time now just has a, a larger influence than before, because if you're trying to do like a, an update for Christmas or Halloween or whatever, you know, that day come and goes. So you got to get that update out at that time. So time is a much more aggressive constraint mm. and that, that constraint at first challenging, but mm-hmm. in the end rewarding to a designer because you, you're forced to kind of prioritize. Constraints always help make decisions. I you find, yeah. All decisions. Yeah. And it never feels good. It never feels good to like cut it up and prioritize and say, okay, this is important. And I know it's important, but it's the least important in my list of things. And and then you can, maybe it doesn't make the cut, 
But it, with live service, it could come back later as an update. Yeah, I was about to ask, is there really pressure when it can always just fall to the following release, right? To know you'll have an opportunity eventually. Yeah, and it allows you to actually think of a feature through its different iterations. Like, oh, maybe this is the first release and then maybe then mm -hmm. what I thought was important but would actually make an incredibly cool second update. And it also allows you time to assess how the first one did because now you have analytics to kind of one back up some of your mm -hmm. assumptions or contradict some of your surprise you. You mm -hmm. know, we talked about that surprise in, in Midnight Club with logging on and seeing people play not how I expected. But yeah. that can influence how you design the update and so on. So it becomes a much more iterative and reactive way of designing, which is super, super interesting as a game designer to to, to have that new methodology. So that was the, perhaps the biggest difference for me going on. Now, I, it may be different now. And, you know, Rockstar has GTA Online and maybe mm -hmm. they're actually adapt, adopting some of these processes. But at the time, I wasn't involved with that. So this was my first foray into this games as a service and, and how you can design with those constraints. Do you see any negative aspects of this analytics-driven development? Look, the, the most common one is, and there's a picture of it, is the local maximum is actually a minimum kind of approach or problem, which is you can imagine like a, a 3D mountainscape or 3D graph where you have peaks and troughs. Yep. And so you could actually, the data could be telling you, we're going to try to get this peak a little higher, a little higher. But what you're blinded to that is a, is a completely different approach could result in a much larger summit, right? And so you, you run the risk of optimizing this particular aspect of the game, but not recognizing the, the opportunity outside of your periphery. You make me feel better about developing from the gut and, and off of your personal sensibilities of what you know and, and love, as opposed to just kind of what the numbers are telling you, right? So there is a world where you still need our, our old school approach in tandem with the numbers. It can't just be one or the other. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the process to me is one, know your players, yep. make sure you're designing for your players, but then you design by instinct, right? Mm -hmm. So you, that, you essentially empathize with your players. You develop an instinct from that empathy and you design to that. So that's where the creativity and kind of the, your mind gets to play, but then you validate through data. That sequence makes a ton of sense to me. Help frame the timing and the, the industry at the time, right? Because I take for granted where we are today, where it's kind of commonplace, but for its time, Facebook games and Zynga was a behemoth kind of rocket ship out of left field. Of course, this is 2011 and well, at this point, it's over a decade ago, but but you're right. We were all really hooked on Facebook. We were living it. And this is the time when Facebook was kind of allowing that, you know, what nowadays we would consider spam, but they were allowing all those viral posts to go onto the newsfeed. It was like, it was like, Morrow invites you to, or gives you a bunch of free currency yeah, to go use like, in Farmville. Uh, sad puppy, I think is their famous one, you know, feed the sad puppy. But it, not just that, right? It was bringing in new players. Right. That mm -hmm. was actually the big thing was the market was growing. It's not just adolescent boys. We're talking about women and, and men of all ages are getting into games for the first time. Kind of rejuvenating that connection, right? Yeah. And they're playing with their families because of all the social aspects of Facebook and, and so on. And geez, I think when I ended up joining Zynga, Cityville was at like 20 million DAU. Wow. Every day, 20 million players, you know, it's daily insane. active users, 20 yeah. million, like anything you design or publish. Boom, 20 million eyes and hands. It's, it's an, a huge impact. And to be honest, I fired up the game, Cityville in particular, and I was impressed. It was a quality experience. You know, it was very quaint. I really enjoyed putting the, the buildings down and collecting from the businesses. It was cute. I actually enjoyed the gameplay. But I think more importantly, I saw it as an opportunity to do, to do this something different. So and, the and novelty. 
Yeah, and it also the job was in San Francisco. I'd been in San Diego for a couple of years. I had a lot of friends in San Francisco. So I thought, hey, let's go up there and hang out. You know, I'm closer to my friends. It's, it's the middle of the city. You know, it's hard to say no to all that. And then, like I said, doing more mini games on GTA 5 was more the same. So yeah, packed up our bags and, and moved up north to the... They relocated you, packed you up and... They relocated me, you know, they did everything. They welcomed me with open arms, you know. That's also because for whatever reason, I knew that where Rockstar was in Carlsbad, there was a Zynga studio like on the same road, like on Faraday yeah, or something like a that. Later. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a little, a little later after the fact. So in my head, I was like, oh, you, did you just go down the road? But no, no, you went to headquarters, right? Headquarters oh, is in yes, Mother's. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And, and they were actually in their like what's considered their old office now. They're still in Daharo before they moved to their big building on Townsend. So I was like, it's kind of still had a startup feel to the building, you know? Like I said before, oil and vinegar, everything is different at Zynga. And, and literally, culture, the layout, the, the work painted for me, man. I'm still on the outside looking in. Two things that struck me right away were just kind of the empowerment you have. I think one of their, their values is, you know, you are your own CEO in charge of your own destiny. You can make decisions autonomously, often with the product manager that you're assigned to. But I had every product manager I worked with, just a wonderful working relationship. Is that synonymous with a producer, essentially, product manager and producer? It depends on the company, but I like to think of the product manager as someone who's responsible for the business. Often in games, they have to marry that with good game design principles. But I always think they're the last, literally the buck stops, starts, stops with them, you know? That's how I think of it. They're, they want to make money for the company. Ergo, they, they want to make the best product possible, right? To, to, yeah. to get the most money. Everything's about cadence and life service. But coming from Rockstar, where we had just spent five years doing a game, this was a, a real shock to me. This is like PS3, Xbox 360, mobile smartphones are kind of getting off, right? But everybody's kind of playing in their browser mostly. Well, it's browser time, right? And, and a lot of the people that worked at Zynga came from the web. This is people who are making web pages, right? And so that's where the analytics side comes through. That's the other part of it. They're always looking at the data and they could see not only what people are doing, but where they came from. Like, how do they get into your game, right? It's not just going to EB games and buying it off the shelf, you know, it was either an ad or found it organically or whatever. So there's a lot of, a lot of- That's crazy, yeah. It, you know, kind of into the traditional model, it would take like a month for all the data to get back to us, right? Like, hey, okay. how did we sell this month? What, what stores? How many did we ship? Okay, who's reordering? Things like that, right? Like, but it's totally different as in- oh, It's real time. You can literally see it as it comes in. But as a design principle, this was actually an important lesson, right? That time pressure now means that as a designer, you actually have constraints. You know what I mean? You actually have to prioritize things. You may not get everything you want in your design. You could chop up your design, right? You could put it out in pieces because it's a live service. You could put out a, a, the kind of base functionality and then you could even play that to your advantage, right? Oh, I want mm. this. Wouldn't that make an incredible update? you know, once it comes out. So that was a huge, you know, growing opportunity was understanding constraints and understanding prioritization of, of your designs and be able to chop things up into, into sizable chunks. So it's very, very valuable in terms of growing me as a robust designer. Yeah. I would think listening to you talk about that, that approach, that mindset to design work to me screams a, an awesome evolution, but b super useful, despite what type of game you're building. Right. Like being able to kind of prioritize, say that, you know, this is like a feature, B feature, this is super critical and necessary. Okay. Then this can come behind it. This can slip, but the modularity I love, right. Cause then a product manager, whoever can be like, we're taking this one. Okay. We're pushing this one for the next release, for instance. 
it's valuable because it's like a distillation process. You know, the, the kind of the best way to make something is you kind of over design and then you almost cut the fat, right? And you get this almost, it's like a liqueur, like you're distilling it to this purest essence of what makes it good. And so it's, it's a wonderful methodology for designing, I, you know, over design and cut, 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 you know, and at what point did you cut too far? That's probably the, the keystone of your design. Distilling it down, right? But that wouldn't happen, right? Like if you're shipping features every week, what does that distillation actually look like then, right? If you're kind of pedal to the metal every week, something's happening. You have to be quite brutal. It never feels good. Even when you're doing it, you're like, oh, that's really important. <laughs> I don't want to cut that. Right? I, but you do it. You do it more often than maybe you want to, but it's, it keeps the, the engine going and it keeps the players satisfied. You know, they're insatiable. The other big lesson too, by the way, which is an overall lesson, is you never, everything you expect the content to be consumed by, you know, it's going to be like 5X in, once you put it out in the world. Like players consume content. Ravenously. Faster than you could ever imagine. Yeah, you build things thinking like, oh, yeah, this will buy us some weeks, days, hours or whatever. And it's a fraction of that. Huh? Before you know it, you got nine. You know, we talk about the elder, elder game, elder players. Well, these are players who just burned through the main game, and now you have to create a whole new game for them. And then now you have a live service, right? You have a game where you have both people installing the game and people who are at level one hundred at the same time. So you have to think about those players, and you have to think about oh. players who are you. Maybe the third mm-hmm. lesson thing, right? Was it was kind of easy, Rockstar, because me and you were kind of the people who played those games. Yeah, we're kind of building it for ourselves. We are the audience. In this case, I wasn't all the time the audience. So you have to, you know, watch user testing. You know, the old behind the glass. You used to sit behind the glass and bring people in and watch them play. And, you know, you got a big old blinking arrow that says, click here. <laughs> and they're not looking there. <laughs> it's kind of a classic thing, you know? That's excruciating every time, man. Every time. You feel so inadequate you're like what more can i do how more heavy-handed do i need to be yeah off, often it's about being less heavy-handed right and just kind of getting there there the headspace I'm, I'm i'm a big fiction guy i'm a big like the design's not done until the fiction and the mechanic are married you have to come in from a game design mechanic but the skin plays such a huge role in framing what the suspension of disbelief is happening in in the mind so i feel like once you have to kind of set up that conceit in the player. And then from the conceit comes kind of natural language that helps support the game mechanic. It's a duality. You have to have both things humming for it to work. The mechanics and the narrative being married perfectly makes me wonder, does that all fall on one person's shoulders? Do you have different people tackling different aspects? There's a healthy team to, to rely on. We had writers, we had narrative writers, and, and actually the two I worked with were, were brilliant. Love them to death. Sammy and Miriam. Sammy in particular was a comedian. Damn, like improv comedian? Actually improv. He's, he's gone on to, to start his own company. I forget the name of the company. He'd fill this auditorium full of people. And then he would show random slides behind you. Uh-huh. And, and you would have to like, almost like you're, you're, you're pitching to investors. And he'd show like just insane pictures behind you. You know, half naked guy laying on a couch or like a guy. He's back towards the, the present. Yeah, behind you. Behind you is an absolute random shotgun of images. Yeah. You got to turn around and be like, oh, and today's, you know, today I want to sell you on this. And, it's, and all these people from the audience would try, you know, their improv to, to, to sell. It was hysterical. And it, That's it was amazing. Like, it was such part of Silicon Valley culture, you know, this whole pitching to investors and all. Yeah, that's the name of the game, huh? That's got to keep you sharp because, you know, part of part of the design utility belt is definitely, you know, pitching and advocating and defending ideas or making shit up. That's definitely a part of it sometimes. 
You have to be creative and you have to convince people, which is, I think, the hardest part of the job is convincing people that. That was something he did for, like, moonlighting to get to his comic, com- yeah, comedy Yeah, he was before he joined us, and then he, he wrote for us, and then, and then he left to start this company. And uh, Speechless, that's the name of the company. Speechless, okay. Check this yeah, out. Yeah, it's still running. That seems like a pretty sweet monthly workshop that would just be useful for it was. the creatives he, on a team. He, he did a workshop, and it reminded me, you know, circle back when I was at Carnegie Mellon, I took an improv class and it was a very important class. And I always refer to it a lot. You know, even the yes and approach of, of not shutting down your teammates and kind of building on what someone else suggests to see where it goes. You know, it's a, it's a really powerful technique. So, so you're referring to like, we're talking about an idea, kind of riffing, as opposed to shutting something down, so you say yes, and, and then that helps kind of continue it, but right? The other thing is, no, 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 no. But what if we did this? Right. And you know, it, it works on the, on the stage. When that happens on stage, the whole fucking scene breaks down. It's kind of like slamming a door. Yeah. You know, the show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? Great show. You know, watch it and just see when you yes and something, that's where you get to explore where the stories can go, where the ideas can go. And you'll be surprised. You might come back. Oh, wow. Look where this, look where this led. Mm-hmm. I, totally. I myself would never be able to go there. But because I yes and it's your suggestion or his suggestion or her suggestion, you get to these places. I find that that's a big part of leading a team, right? Is how do you empower them to get to that distilled idea? You know what I'm saying? Like maybe people are silent, people not meshing, ideas are clashing, right? How do you get that ball rolling, right? Get the creative juices yeah, starting to get- you have to, to, get to everyone's suggestion. That, that's what the brainstorm. It starts with a big cloud of ideas and then it's only the second, third, fourth phase of the process where you can start to distill and see where, where it goes. But you really need to overinflate before you- like you said, right? Like go crazy and then trim the fat and distill, but yeah. don't, don't start trimming the fat before you even got anything, before you got any meat on the bone. Yeah. It's not easy. If it was easy, everyone. <laughs> Looking back on it, you had a good run over there in that well, I was, world. I ended up being there, I think for three and a half years, something like that. So I was on Cityville for, I want to say it was like one and a half, two. And it was fantastic. Just again, love came up with all these features, features of the week that I think really added a lot of value. You kind of knew when things worked at Zynga because you would design a feature and then they would kind of reuse it over and over again. What's an example? I did a feature called Halloween. So, you know, as life service, you do a lot of holidays. Halloween was one of them. And I had this, I guess, cute idea of like monsters moving into your city. And I kind of thought of like the pilgrims, you know, on the Mayflower. I felt like they were been ostracized from monster land. And so they arrived on like a ghost ship you know, like the Mayflower. And they're like, we need a new home, you know? And then everyone in the city would be like, oh, of course, I'll, you can live in our city. And then you would build monster houses for them. But Cityville's core loop is you have community buildings that cap the population. You'd have to build monster community buildings. And the artists just did a bang up job with this, these buildings. We're talking like, instead of a bank, have like a blood bank and like a, a haunted library, you know? Yeah. They're just unreal art. But it also had this mechanical advantage of kind of like resetting everyone's game. You know, we talk about Elder Game. Everyone now had to build these monster community buildings to get the monsters to move in. Oh, it, nice. then, yeah, these monsters moving around. Anyway, this population system was kind of reused later on for our expansions. You know, we did like a lake expansion to the east. And I think after I left, they did a snow expansion. Even the following Halloween, it was like a ghost population instead of monster yeah. population. So you get to reuse it and stuff like that. You know, one lesson I'll, I'll tell you from Zynga is 
we did another expansion called downtown and it was big and involved and all this stuff. But while I was working on this and it was long, long for Zingistan, I think worked on it for like maybe three months or so coming from fires, three months is long. But at the time I, had, I literally had a dream. It was funny. I had a dream that I wanted to put a rainbow in the city because St. Patrick's day was coming up again, holidays, they're kind of more easy to work with than not. And so I wanted to build a rainbow in the city. And then we, we made it so you collect shamrocks from your friends using that Facebook thing. Yeah every, yeah. every time you posted to your wall, it was a random color. So that in itself was an innovation because now seeing like a rare purple shamrock was like this, oh my God, I gotta have it and so on. So it was like this random number generator game to the to the posting. But we also had like buildings that came out every week. And for the first time we introduced the the idea that these community these buildings of the week also gave you shamrocks. Mm-hmm. That ended up being really a really important feature, but I guess the, the the point of the story is it came that idea came to me and that feature came to me while I was doing this bigger feature. So like, you kind of need that variation in your thought processes. A lot of times you get bogged down in doing something big and massive, a bold beat, but you kind of need to take inspiration when it comes and then just kind of like capture that moment. Even way back at Angel Studios when I started, my boss felt some. We did it once, maybe twice. We literally took afternoons and just walked around toy stores. But just walking around the toy shop and checking out what toys are on the shelves, you get ideas. You get ideas and just to be creative. So always just try to keep that creative spark, whether it's movies or books or podcasts like this one, just try to stay alive and find inspiration wherever, especially I think when you're kind of in a rut focusing on one big thing. I don't know the state of Toys R Us today. I keep hearing like someone bought it and they're going to reopen it or something like that. Right. They should. It's a great name, right? (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what they look like today, right? Because you imagine Mm -hmm. that, you know, whatever generation of console we're on, toys are in that same level of like articulation and interactivity or whatever. There's still a great expression of play. And then you just can't forget the games are still about play. So you just want to stay relevant, see what's going on and get inspired about different ideas. You don't have it. It's a good way to do it. When I worked at Warner Brothers, you know, they produced the Lego games and WB Games Montreal had just shipped Lego Chima. So they had this dedicated Lego room and this was the shit. I remember that my badge didn't even unlock the door. So it was only like the director level and above that had full unlock privileges. They had all the pieces organized into bins by colors, dimensions, even like, you know, the two by two square blocks or one by threes or those L connectors. Yeah, it was the exact moment that it hit me that, oh, this is what you get when you are in the senior and leadership ranks. You get access to these behind closed doors, secret prototyping meetings with the creative director. It was at the time, it was one of my fave dudes, man, Pat Redding. Game director on that project, I think, was Seb Bassett. And then design director, I think, Pierre Dubay. So we're in there building out and modeling all the gameplay ingredients that we've been discussing on paper or whiteboards, right? Or even at a high level. And we built out vehicles and, you know, blocked out like what a city block was. And, you know, I don't know about you, but elevation is something that's super hard to get right on paper. And when we're lobbing grenades and playing kind of like turn by turn asynchronously, you know, like, hey, this is an encounter. So the players would go, it was a co-op experience. And since I was the AI designer, I was controlling the AI and responding and showing them how the agents would react based on the vision that they had and breaking out detection models and squad mechanics. And it was some of the fondest memories I have on that project, Metallica. 
and the, the beauty of it is that so you can move fast and it's cheap. You know, we get to have these real honest discussions as, you know, oh, hey, is that what you had in mind? Or no, no, it wasn't like that. I would expect them to behave like this. I was even advising Full Sail, right? They hit me up to on a kind of panel committee thing. And it was like, yo, you guys should build out a prototyping room like this for the game dev and design students. Yeah. Yeah. Toy stores. We got to preserve these, man. There's got to be museums or exhibits dedicated to this stuff somewhere. There are. I got a brother in Rochester and they got the Museum of Play over there and they have this hall full of toys and they have a great good uh, video game portion as well where they're preserving video game history. Rochester, New York, Museum of Play. That shit is on my list. So you're at Zynga three and a half years, completely different experience and live analytics every day, data backing every decision you make. Cityville the whole time? No, so Cityville for a year and a half, then had a little bit of an attempt at some new games that didn't work out. And then onto Farmville 2. Is Farmville like the biggest product out of Zynga at the time? Yeah, sure. Farmville, yeah. And Farmville 2 was, was equally big. So Farmville 2, for I think another year and a half. And then I ended up leaving Zynga because I really wanted to do mobile games. So Zynga wasn't really mobile, it was browser. Well, right? they were just a little slower, you know, in hindsight, perhaps slower than they should have been. They were kind of married to Facebook, right? And when yeah, Facebook kind yeah, of they're married to Facebook. And like I said, you know, back then it was all those asking for a loan, you know, sad puppy were everywhere. And then Facebook just turns that off. That has a, that has an immediate impact <laughs> on our games, but that's not really the story. This, I think the story is just being just a little, you know, you have heyday from Supercell out on mobile, you know, you always wonder like, well, where's Farmville? I mean, that, that's a farming game. So anyway, they were just a little. I mean, nowadays they're not. Nowadays they're doing great with mobile. Yes. So it's just a matter of timing and ramping and, and all these other transitional things. So I was approached, again, kind of approached from another company. This is a, this is a kind of a weird part of my career. A, l a little off ramp. Yeah. Yeah. This is a little divergence here where I was approached by someone who was starting a new company, like a startup, but they were funded by a Chinese company. And the Chinese company was Lancong. I never heard of them, but they were doing mobile, right? They were like, we're doing mobile. We want to set up an office in Burlingame in the Bay Area and, you know, we're ramping up. And I was like hire number three. It was the CEO Damn. and the, there's a producer and, and myself. And maybe there was, I think, one or two programmers. Maybe I was number five. I don't know. It was a very risky thing to do. And I still not sure if it was the right thing to do. But, you know, like sometimes you take a little bit of a chance. Going from like a stable corporation to like a startup, being number three at a startup. Yeah, yeah. I guess I saw it as an opportunity to, to do something different again, right? It's a theme going on, right? We go from rock star to Zynga, that's different. I was like, well, what about a startup? You know, what about something really small? The promise was, you know, just look through all the games on Kong, you know, from my history and just let's make some mobile games. Okay, cool. So anyway, I did it. I, I left Zynga and I went to go do this little and thing. I imagine like full creative control, right? Like carte blanche. Yeah. It was. That's appealing for any creative, really. Exactly. So I was like, let's try this. So with the team, we did like, we spent like a month or two doing a super small game. They even had it kind of going on just to kind of go through the process of putting a game out in the app store. You know what I mean? Just to go through yeah. the process. Right. Yeah. It wasn't much of anything. So that went, that went out, we did that. And then my attention turned to like, what are we going to do? We've got to make a game now, <laughs> which is a lot of pressure. <laughs> like, oh shit. So match puzzles and dragons was big at the time. You know, and that's kind of like a puzzle RPG, puzzle quest kind of game. Right? Puzzle quest. Yes, dude. I, I rocked that shit on my DS. And I think when it went mobile, I happily bought it again. Right. You play a match three game, but you're really just feeding an RPG character that's sending out attacks, right? And they give the metal upgrading your characters, maybe doing some board gameplay. So I wanted to do that. And I had 
one of my favorite game of all times, I think I even mentioned in hour one was Tetris Attack. Yes. Right. You, you, it was like fascinating to you. Yeah. So I love that game to death. I was great. And actually when Tetris Attack went to N64 called Pokemon Puzzle League, they took that 2D board and there's a mode where they wrapped it around a cylinder. And so I, I stole that. <laughs> so, so, you know, we talk about remixing and good artists yeah. and all that. So I was like, oh, I want to do that because I had this kind of fascination. I was like, you know what? I feel like that's going to feel really good on mobile. With your touch input. Yeah, just imagine holding the device and with your thumb, you're like spinning the board. And you're yeah, spinning totally. at the bottom. So the whole thing's like on a base, right? So if you, if you rub the bottom, you'd spin, you'd spin the cylinder. And then on the board, you're just swapping the tiles. And then I had this, I just kind of kept rolling with it. And I've always been, I was always been Transformers, kind of a sci-fi kind of guy. So mm-hmm. I wanted the, the world to kind of be like this collection of like sci-fi like suits. And so anyway, the game ended, I wanted to call the game Battle Core. Battle and core, C-O-R-E, right? Because this okay. yeah, this idea like this cylinder is like there's a core. And actually started with like, have you ever played Tetrisphere? On the Tetrisphere. I'm picturing it, but I don't think I played it. Tetris wrapped around a sphere and you match it and you dig deeper into the core. Oh, okay. It's like you're going into like yeah. layers, into the core yeah. of the earth That's or whatever. What it started was like, you're kind of trying to like match the board. Ended up being simplified and distilled. Ended up to being something a little bit more like Candy Crush where you're just kind of like, if you match something, the just the background skin lights up. And, uh-huh. and then if the more tiles you light up, you end up charging a core attack. So you're kind okay. of like widening up the cylinder and then you decide risk reward when you activate the core attack for like a big thing. But this collection okay, of I characters, like you know, obviously it's a collection game. A lot of these games are allowed us to do this while we outsourced a lot of the art and we just kind of created this collection of characters. And look, I love that game to death. And if you go to my portfolio, you can see pictures of it and shit. It's a little weird because if you actually search Google Battle Core, like I spelled, you'll uh-huh. end up finding this first person shooter game that took the name. Funny enough, I was once contacted, but from Activision recruiting because they thought that I had made this first person shoot. I'm sure they wanted me for Call of Duty. And I had to explain to them, like, no, I didn't work on that game. I worked in this other game called Battlecore. And they're like, okay, fine, bye. (laughs) Anyway, so this game, I'm very, very proud of it to this day. I really felt it came out well. And I felt like not only had I created a game, but I created an IP. It created a world. You know, I had big plans to kind of do and go into like an RTS on it or a bunch of different games, you know, a first person shooter in this world. Smart. Yeah. I mean, if you're one company, a small company, right? Like build the intellectual property and then just build as many games off of that as possible. Right. Yeah. That was the idea. Didn't work out though. This might be another lesson, not a lesson, but investors pulled out. Uh, yes, that's exactly what happened. So all of a sudden we put the game out for like, you know, one of those little tests, you know, we pay for some ads, we get some people in, we look at the retention and all that stuff. We, we, in, like we a, in like a specific location or like? I don't remember what it was. Probably okay. was, but just get some number of users in, right? See what the metrics are and figure out what to do next. But it was only like two or three weeks into that where yeah, the CEO came and was like, we're done. And I was like, well, that just sucks. <laughs> but it, it, we weren't done done because he was like, but I've managed to find another Chinese company to buy us, right? And we don't have to move. We don't want to, we mean, you know, we, we can just kind of keep going, right? But, you know, with the way legal things work, the old company owned Battlecore. And so, yeah. like, well, this new company does. So we have to say goodbye to Battlecore. And so to me, it felt like a game was canceled. And that's, I guess, the lesson. And because up until now, that had never really happened to me. I didn't, I hadn't had a baby that was taken away from me. And, and, and I'm sure anyone who's making games now is probably saying, well, yeah, dude, this happens all the freaking time. 
I mean, I mean, games have I had that have been canceled? We we all go through it once or twice. I think I've got one, two, three that I can remember off the top of my head, like three kills from underneath me, like that I consider to have raised for a bit. And it hurts. I never felt that before. It really hurts. Dude, this is a good run, man. You had like a good 10 years or so before you felt that. Yeah, no, I do count myself lucky in that regard. Absolutely. No developer is immune. By the way, here's a, it's a, this is a sad story, but it just, to me, demonstrates the impact that we do have, especially at Rockstar. There was this terrible, sad thing that happened down in Tasmania about a month ago where this bouncy house blew over and these children died. And this one, this one kid, he had his funeral and he was a big gamer. And I saw on the news on his casket, they had a poster of Red Dead Redemption 2 because that was his favorite game. You know, when we're making games over there in sunny San Diego, do you think that someone in Tasmania, Australia is going to be playing games and what it meant to them, what it meant to them that that's what they would put out at their family's funeral? It really, you know, cemented just how much of an impact we have. The reach, man, that something you work on will, what is it, consume another being's life to the point where they're identified well, that's, that's what they by identify that? Is, you know, that's what defines this, this person and many other people who play what we make. It's an incredible honor to do what we do. And it definitely adds some like great power, great responsibility to what we do. But I don't know where I would go, you know, to say the responsibility is, is that put what we can to make this thing as wide reaching as possible. Make it as good as you can. Because, mm-hmm. you know, that's really, I don't know, I guess the takeaway is just uh, it has a profound impact on people's lives. These games, it means an incredible amount to people. And so just, just take it as seriously as you can and just do a good job. For some reason, the word grateful comes to mind, you know, like yeah. it's easy. We've been doing this for a while. It's easy to kind of take it for granted to be like, yeah, this is just our job. <laughs> you know, like this is what pays the bills. And I guess if we can shift perspectives to be like, you know, not everybody gets to do this. A lot of people would love to do this. A lot of people underestimate the amount of work that it takes, but it's a fucking fantastic role, right? It's a fucking great livelihood and career. I I don't know how else to say it. No, it is. I count myself very lucky, kind of blessed, you know, to be able to do this because it is a fantastic job and childhood dream. A lot of us grew up playing them and now to make them is fantastic. But yeah, we were definitely part of something big in terms of the world and, and gets bigger by the day. If you weren't doing this, mm. what could you see yourself doing alternate? Yeah, that's a tough one, isn't it? Would anything give you the same outlet? I think it would still be something creative. Like movies, writing, yeah, movie or drawing. writing or can't paint, but I try to learn. I don't know. Just, you tried to paint. You you had an interesting kind of like mechanical approach to it. Yeah, a little bit of robotics. I'd probably be doing that, to be honest. I'd probably do robotic something rubble. The machines are coming, man. The machines are coming. Yeah, maybe by the time we'll know if it'll be ready. Have you seen like current mech suits? Like this current state of the art? No. You got to check it out, man. It's pretty crazy. Like these exoskeletons that people jump in and are able to do things and pick things up. I mean, the Boston Dynamics stuff is freaky as all heck. Okay, so Battle Corps is done, but we have a new investor. I think it was... Actually, I messed up. I'm sorry. The first company was called Four Game, and the second one was called Linecom. And so we start working with that, but the mandate kind of changes. So we end up doing like a licensing deal with Fox and for the new independence. Then we also started working with this company in Finland. I mean, all this, these deals are kind of happening from our CEO. He's kind of, which is good. He's keeping us alive. I, 
No, no. It's like wheeling and dealing, locking yeah, and he's deals. Doing, he's doing what he's got to do to get his deals and, 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 and gigs and so forth. So we ended up kind of using the technology of this Finland company had, which is Unity, but they had an engine and it's licensing or whatever we did to like get out this Independence Day game. So I did that and it was kind of like a Clash of Clans kind of game, an RTS. Would you consider that a cousin of the farming games or very different? Uh, I mean, a little bit. You're placing yeah. bases and moving them around, but it's a little yeah. more strategy. But you could play as the aliens or the humans. So that was fun. Yeah. Two races. But, you know, it's a, like it's, it's not what I wanted to do, right? Came in with that kind of like make custom new IP and I'm doing Yeah, it. you like building building a whole world as opposed yeah, to here. The world's already right. defined for you. And this 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 other license thing is not really what I wanted to do. So it was time to kind of look for something else. And that ended up being where I am today, which is also do Okay, so tell me about that. Tell me about that because to go from the Bay Area to <laughs> fucking Australia, how did that happen? Well, first of all, the studio itself, Fire Monkeys, is fantastic. And we do racing and sims. And so you look at that and I'm like, well, holy crap. My career has been doing racing and sims. Or Match made. They had to have found you. I'm sure they found you. They're like, this guy. We need this guy. But yeah, I think Australia is really the story here. Because just had a daughter at that point. She was maybe two or three. So you're always thinking about where you want to raise your kid. I'll be honest, dude. This is this is actually the uh, Hillary Trump election year. This happened. Oh, it's a great time to get the hell out of Dodge, man. <laughs> it, it ended up being like, oh shit, Trump's selected. And, and I arrived like, what he got inaugurated the 20th. I arrived the 8th in January. I was in Canada at the time and I was happy to be in Canada. Yeah. I literally wrote on Facebook. I'm like, I'm, I'm leaving on America. Please don't let it burn. Please be there when I come back. Literally, it Four years later, the fucking capital was on fire. Oh man. So I guess in hindsight, that was a good move. And it was a good move because Australia is just fantastic. My brother, like I said, he's in Rochester. He's always convincing me. He's like, you should go to Canada. You can find a job in Toronto because just across the, the border. Mm-hmm. He's like, Canada is like America, you know, but the, there's, le- there's, le- there's no guns and there's free health care, right? And I'm like, yeah, but Australia is like Canada with better beaches. Well, why would I? I'm sure Canada's nice. But Australia yes, but is. Can't, can't, can't argue. It's hard of, to find one beaches. One thing I'll say about, about Australia is, is everything you read about the, the creatures is. Oh my gosh. Uh, is correct. Do you have any stories? <laughs> this house that I rented, first day I moved in, there were spiderwebs everywhere. Sure. Right? And I'm like, okay, whatever. So I'm putting, take, but there's, there's one that's just massive across the sliding screen door. And I see this <laughs> spider, it's the size of my hand. Oh, it's like sh- hanging out there. And I'm like, okay, but that's it's his house. You're, you're renting his house. <laughs> but then I look around the, the corner on the patio, right next to my daughter's toys. There's another web and a big spider. And uh, my wife's got a different angle. My wife's like, oh yeah, look at that thing. It's, it's got this red mark on its back. Oh God! Yeah, it's called anyway. It's called a redback spider. It's kind of like the cousin of a black widow. Uh huh. As venomous? As very venomous. They'll kill you, or maybe. And Ozzy would say no, they won't kill you, but it'll hurt. <laughs> you. And then on the web, I saw these egg sacs. Oh God! And I was like, okay, that's it. So I called an exterminator, and they came and sprayed. And but at least once a year, I'm finding what's called huntsman spiders in the house, and they are they are like as big as your hand, and you got to trap them, and they like to jump. When you oh talk- my gosh, bro! Don't <laughs> tell me about these jumping spiders, man. Oh. Just because any any creature that is agile and moves twitchy, right? It's just always yeah. a force to be reckoned with, man. And 
And you can see the signs on them. You can see them. People might call me a chump or a pansy or something. And it's just like, yo, the thing is that I'm going to enter combat with this thing and I'm going to take some hits, man. I'm going to lose some hit points and I don't really want to take any damage. That's all it comes down to, man. Oh, you can, you can win. You're safe, but no, that's their house. <laughs> oh, man. So, so that's the small price to pay to live in Canada with awesome beaches. Yeah, it's okay. a small price to pay because everything else is fantastic. People, people are great. The people are, are fantastic. I'm in Melbourne and it's like, I, I call it like a cosmopolitan city, right? So I came from San Francisco, but it's the same kind of vibe. The arts are humming, sports are humming. There's a great mix of cultures, great diversity. Help me get the geography down. Melbourne's in the South. Melbourne's really close to the, the southernmost point of Australia. Okay. And just across the water is Tasmania, which is the island. Okay. If you go more South, you'll hit Tasmania. Yeah. You can go to Tasmania. No, no crazy natural disasters. Not really. It has wild weather. There's a saying that there's uh, four seasons in a day in Melbourne. Okay. You, you <laughs> have, like wild squalls come through, wind and stuff, but but generally very temperate. You know, it doesn't really get that cold. It gets a little hot in the summer, but it's it's very pleasant to live here. So you worked in San Diego, right? Which we can say a pretty small development community, and then in the Bay gigantic development community, right? Everywhere you go, there's games or some software being made or some startup being founded. Mm -hmm. How is Melbourne with development? It's on the rise now, but it was quite nascent five years ago when I got here and even before then. So there was a big boom early. I won't even know what the time frame. I want to say 2000s, maybe, maybe 90s, Mm -hmm. 2000s. And the government was doing a lot of funding and the dollar, you have to understand that the dollar, the Australian dollar to the U.S. What's dollar. it called? Does it have a name? Australian dollar. Okay. They call them buckaroos or something. <laughs> uh, that's what I wanted to know. Right? That'd be a name. Buckaroos. Australian dollar. <laughs> uh, but the conversions, it's whatever. It's currently like 70 cents to the dollar. So it's cheaper to run here, right? Similar to Canada. Almost similar. Yeah. 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 I think two things happened. There was the global financial crisis, right? But also there was a point where the dollar inverted and it became even like one to one or maybe even worse. So there was a, an era where a lot of studios closed out. I mean, we talked about Rockstar. You remember Team Bondi was yeah. the makers of L.A. Noir. Yes. Uh, that's kind of the era where, where, where and uh, Take Two it was had people working on Bioshock down here. And there were a couple others. Yeah. So there was there, there was a kind of this huge industry and then it kind of closed down. That's crazy. So the economy shifts, their dollar gets stronger, making it too expensive to develop. Right. And wow. the crisis just made a mess of the whole world and so forth. So there's it's kind of in the gutter. But just last year, the Australian government again started to do that subsidizing. That's always what it takes, man. As soon as the government throws money at it, the industry explodes, right? Like everybody's oh, opening up shops. Pandemic helped because what happened was the, the movie industry essentially moved over here during the pandemic. They're uh, making a lot of movies here, but they could do it. You, you guys had like no cases. Well, yeah, we did. Right? At the time. <laughs> at the time. Yeah. But, so I think the government was like, oh, well, look at this. Maybe we should fund the game <laughs> the same way. You're like, yeah. So now they've funded it. And now actually it's starting to grow again. Nice. You know, like Sledgehammer has an office here now. Okay. Call of Duty devs. There's a few more. That Fantastic. Are so I, it's, it's on the rise, which is great. I love it to see it. It's always great when there's healthy competition and, and knowledge sharing, right? And, and whatever conferences. 
yeah. spur up as a result and universities getting in on it and talent. It's a lot of universities, a lot of great talent. And then you go to these student showcases every year and you're really humbled because they're that these students are making things that just like, wow, and talk about imposter syndrome. You see this stuff here they go, oh man, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the next generation, right? They're just, they're born into unity and unreal and cloud mm -hmm. computing and APIs and marketplace, just countless resources just built and already working for you, right? Like just yep. taking a run with it. You know, one thing I want to say about Australia is it took me a long time to understand it. And I'm not even sure I do yet and to, under, to acclimate to it. Have you ever heard this thing called the tall poppy um, syndrome? Of anything? It's actually comes from maybe New Zealand. Australia shares it. Okay, describe it for me. It's its cultural attitude, basically looking down on anyone who boasts, right? And so it's, it's very much counter the American culture. I think Sweden is built this way too, man. Right? It's like... Mm -hmm. No one wants to see or hear you as an individual be better than the other individual. Than the collective, really. And then the collective. So even if you did something proud, you're really, you can't boast about it because all your mates are just going to be like, who's this asshole, right? And so very, very counter the American ethos. Yeah. I like to think of it as American exceptionalism. There's an attitude as an American that you're special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that you, if you just embrace your specialness, you can be anything you want to be, right? It's that the collective is, is not worth your effort. It's very different here. I'll tell you a story. I was watching TV when I first got here and they have, who wants to be a millionaire, right? Mm -hmm. You know, with, with Regis, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm watching it and the format is real, is different. It's not the, the game I know. So I'm watching it. It starts off with like a group of people, right? And they play fastest finger, right? They answer questions. And, but on the American version, the, the person who wins fastest finger, right? Goes, wins, gets to go, go for the million. Yep. In this version, it just figures out the order. So in fact, the person who wins actually goes last. Okay. And then the person who was slowest goes first. Okay. And then when, when someone gets something wrong, they, the total amount that can be won drops for the next player and they can pass as well and they go back in the queue. So if they don't know, instead of trying getting it wrong, they can pass and the number still stays in a million, but the next one goes and they may or may not get a, a turn back depending on how the game plays out. And I found it very fascinating because I was like, it's, it's a game about the collective, a game about we're in this together. And if one of us gets this wrong, we all suffer because now I can only get 250,000, 50,000, 10,000. And I once saw someone's answer said, you know what? I think I know the answer, but I'm going to pass because I don't want to lower the value for the group. And they said that. Wow. And I thought, how? Oh, they culturalized this for Australia. But you know what? There's my American arrogance coming to play because I went and looked it up. The version that we're playing here in Australia is the version that is like played in Italy. There's many versions of the game, actually. It's interesting to look at. They were first. When the game went over to America, that's when they localized it and changed it to the American version that you and I know where it's the individual going for the million dollars because America would never take this group effort thinking. So it's just really fascinated me about one game. That's a game. Totally. And, and then two, how culturally different life is here. And like, if you, if you drive, for example, like there's uh -huh. speed limits and everyone follows the speed limit. There's also cameras and stuff that you'll get fined and stuff. But you know, in America, good looking speed limits, like barely a suggestion. It's a suggestion. <laughs> It's like a challenge, right? Like yeah. try to beat the highest score. There's a lot of instances where the collective, the thinking about my role, my individual role in society. And so look, it applies to me at work a lot. How so? Well, it's about the team. It's about the team and it's something. And it was honestly bothering me 
I get to talk about myself a lot, you know, yeah. with, 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 like what's my journey, my journey, my journey. But, but the people I work with, they're a huge part of my success and, and everything else. Right. And Red Dead may be a great example. If it wasn't for Michael's, you know, streaming engine, right. Or, or Tom Pepper, you know, all this scripting help, right. Or the yep. millions of other people that, that helped contribute to that game, it would be nothing. And so it just helped me, I like to think, become a better person. But I want also want to say that I, the American upbringing I had comes up all the time. It's a conflicting personality battle inside me that I feel the need to be individually contributing and individually boasting and being proud of the work that I do at conflict, especially now with my role as a leader, where I have to empower the team. And so it's just something I think everyone should be aware of. And I really encourage people to go overseas and to go and try different cultures because it gives you perspective on the influences that create who you are. It's your upbringing, right? You know, nature, nurture. The nurturing does play a role in, in who you become. The American education system is part of it. There's so much there to dissect, Mauro. Like, A, the first thing is honoring and experiencing the clash of cultures, right? You think, hey, I'm coming into this place. I'm building games. I built games before, working with game developers, right? We all speak the same language. And even in that environment, there's a huge difference to the way people operate, right? Or what the day-to-day -day standard operating procedure, right? Like of how yeah. people conduct themselves and, and how, how that- you interact with the people is very different. It's like the the second to second gameplay as opposed to kind of like the, you know, the whole game. I'd love to just take a moment and emphasize that, like you said, if you can experience life across the ocean or different country. It's a lot easier now than it ever was before, thanks to technology and all that stuff. Meaning we could work remote and yeah, be, be in a different that. culture. Yeah, I think working remote. I acknowledge that, bro. Like being at EA, working on Frostbite, I'm very mindful when I have an early ass meeting with people in Stockholm or a late meeting with people down under in Melbourne. I appreciate learning from you and talking to you, right? Because the few people that I interact with in Melbourne, I feel... I operate as myself, right? Not really being mindful of like, yo, man, if I'm like praising this person and yo, thank you so much and you're kicking ass and what would I be without you? Maybe, maybe that's putting them in an uncomfortable situation. It's changing too, by the way. Just my barber, I had one come haircut this morning. He's from New Zealand. Looking sharp, bro. I'm, I'm so used to you with a big beard and curly, long curly hair, man. I know. And I had that mustache for like six months. Just yeah. Really fun, actually. I always consider hair and facial hair to be like a, blank canvas you should have fun with it you know, oh yes especially in the pandemic i love pulling out the mask and being like oh damn looks completely different than what you expected yeah. or last saw well it's a fun it's a fun way of expression but anyway he was commenting that new zealand is a lot like england because he's from new zealand and then australia actually is a lot more like america so there's kind of a more and more american influence on australia that they resent Quite a bit. Really? So yeah. hold on, like when you showed up there, was it like life rough for you kind of thing? Yeah, it wasn't. No, I mean, everyone was very welcoming. Cool. But you just have to be aware, you know, if you try to go rah, 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 mm -hmm. and it all leaves flat, I, I needed people to explain to me, that doesn't work here. And I was like, oh, well, that sucks because that's what I do. <laughs> 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 that's what's gotten me to where yeah, I am. You know, because, you know, you know, let's just say Rockstar, it's all about rah, rah, rah. Oh, yeah, bro. Loudest voice wins. Yeah. It's just different. And so you just have to understand that. And it helps you be also very self-aware and improved. But I think just, yeah, making sure that you're in charge of your own destiny. You know, getting that, that American arrogance, that American 
upbringing about exceptionalism mm-hmm. helped me kind of yeah take control of things whenever I saw an opportunity to do so. And so I think it made me more human, that realization I had. So I'll take that. Yeah, well, that, that's a win, right? That's experience points allocated in the right direction, you know, yeah. becoming yeah. more human with every experience or interaction or conversation. Yeah. And that's with that American exceptionalism. That's where I kind of come from, which is, okay, maybe that arrogance doesn't work here, or maybe that's something that I should dial down and I'll get more value out of my team and, and what we do if I can work on that part of me. But it's, it's, it's a very interesting balance. I, I'm still not sure because I do think that American exceptionalism does create some of the incredible inventions and prosperity that America does provide to the world or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, whenever the Apple and all the technology or all the success comes from that belief that you can and should. Yeah, the, the capitalism, right? I, I would love to see what your media in that country puts out there, right? Is it the same thing mm-hmm. that we see? No, it's not. When I go back to the States, and it's been a while because of COVID, but when I used to go back, it's really like a cultural slap in the face, especially TV, the pharmaceutical ads, gun ads. I hadn't seen that for a while. Even the, the talking head ferociousness of, of CNN and Fox News and all that stuff. You don't really get that here. Really, Interesting. It, it's too much intensity when I go back to the States. Oh, I can't take that. I would say you can be as intense as the best of them, given the right topic. So to hear your growth or evolution, where now it kind of like wakes you up, it's like almost brash and makes you feel humble. It's interesting. I see nothing but growth and a good balance, right? Like going from one extreme to the other direction. Yeah, I like I like where I'm ending up. <laughs> That's what the best thing about it is, right? Is, is liking who you are, liking the direction you're going into. I'm curious on the job as a design director, fighting your upbringing in this new culture world and growing a team of people that are from there. What are the challenges? The challenge is really letting go a lot. It's often okay and encouraged to allow your team members to try and fail. It's okay if they fail, right? Because they, they will learn from that failure. Yeah. Right? And if they went in with good expectations or, you know, they did their due diligence and they still, it's okay. And so that's something you have to be comfortable with. You have to give enough rope that they can either succeed or fail. So that's, I think, the biggest lesson. And then really is to just kind of, you know, be there to talk about your your history and talk about your experience and see if you can, and that to me is what experience is all about, is you'd be like, actually, I've, I've tried something similar or I've yes. gotten something similar. You know, it may not play out the same way this time because times were different back then and all these other different criteria. But let me just tell you a story about how one time I went through this, yeah. what I did and what came out of it. Maybe that's there's value in that. The other part, too, is, again, just to be humble in, in allowing the market to evolve and recognizing when you have to ride it. Like, I'm still trying to figure out if this NFT thing is <laughs> my time. So Bro, I've, I've been putting a lot of headspace to NFTs and then trying to understand both perspectives and all that. Yeah, we, yeah, that's a good conversation to get into maybe for another day. I'm not bought in yet, but yeah. I at least say that I recognize value of having a receipt. I, I think of it as a receipt. Yeah, the digital ledger. I look at it as the equivalent of like digital real estate even. This is okay because often technology, we try, try, try before we get it right. Even VR, we've gone through that and all this other thing. So maybe this will be okay. So I recognize that I'm still not, I, still, I, need, I need to do a lot more reading. Because yeah, I, don't, I don't understand. Maybe you could explain to me. 
just real quick, this idea that when you buy something, it can then be used in multiple places. Like, yeah, maybe, but if I buy butterfly wings in Halo, I can't use it unless the Halo people decide they're going to implement butterfly wings because it's not going to fit on their model and it's going to intersect with their armor. Like, you still need to have an instance support that purchase, right? Yes, exactly. There needs to be an agreed upon standard that yeah, we all buy that. into. It's freaking happening ever. So, <laughs> we'll just USB, say that USB cords do I own? Is that supposed to be the standard USB? <laughs> hey, we're at where we're at. We're at USB C finally, right? And USB C fits into a Mac and fits into yeah, a right. PC. So, okay. <laughs> Yo, you're absolutely right, bro. And there's pros and cons to the arms race that you see now, right? Where it's like, Facebook, aka Meta, is like, yo, we own it. We're going to build our closed system. You know, Epic is like, hey, open Metaverse for all. We're going to build tools and all this and everything in between. It's going to take Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo, right? These people to buy in and be like, here's the standard, right? Like, hey, I mean, I'll take this, Mauro. The fact that we can cross play the Fortnite from True. PlayStation to Xbox to yeah, mobile you to PC. If we can get there in time as a gamer slash developer, that's a huge one for me that I want to take and throw the hands up in 2021 that we got there. I, I, I never thought that we would have got there. The metaverse I'm more bought into. The AR stuff, if you can show tech proving that out, that we can get some augmented reality to show up in all long, you know, minority report style or ready player one or whatever. Yep. If I can log in and, and, and hang out with people in a virtual way, to me, I find VR to be very high friction. What about it do you find high friction? Uh, the two aspects, the, the actual hardware itself is heavy and hot. I sweat, but the fact that it blocks me out of the real world. So I think AR is, has a better chance. If glasses are light and it's, I always think of them contact lenses, if I ever get thing. Oh, and by the way, I always had this idea for a, a company. I'll never get there. So I'll just give it out to the masses. This the te technology. I always picture like, just imagine these little nano robots. They're so small. Maybe they exist now. Really small. And you put a bunch of them in your hand, right? Like dust. And you blow. And they can all kind of fly in the air and kind of like align almost like drone, those drone shows that yeah. have to blow. And then of course you know what you're gonna call it, right? Pixel dust. Oh it's shit. So good. It's so fucking good. When if I'm on my tombstone, just that's just right. We made it. We made it Fury Pixel Dust. We'll spray it on you. Damn. That's the one, that's the one after AR. AR is first. Mm -hmm. Did I give you the whole decade spiel about technology? No. Okay. So when we were working on Red Dead Redemption was uh, 2010, right? Yep. And I turned 30 there, thereabouts then. So when I turned 30, I kind of had this epiphany and it was because of Red Dead. So Red Dead was based in 1910, Death of the West. Right? So here we are 100 years from present day to the game we're making. And I was like, wow, I've been alive, 100 years is 10 decades. I've been alive three of those 10 decades being 30. And that gave me this perspective that three over 10 is not that crazy of a number. And now I'm four over, four over 10, right? Now I'm, so it allowed me to view that span of time in decades and say, wow, it actually hasn't been that long. It gave me mm -hmm. some perspective. And we went from horse and buggy, 1910, right? We're, we're, I'm looking at the Red Dead Redemption where horse and buggy to current day. And then I started looking at my, my life or any life and it's and music is the easiest technology thing to go through. LPs were probably like, you know, let's say the sixties, seventies had like eight tracks. You remember those? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And then you had cassettes in the eighties, CDs in the nineties. I mean, vinyls are in there. Yeah. I mean, they're coming back, but then you had MP3s in the knots. 
And then in the teens, you had streaming. Now we're in the 20s, and I'm going to plug in augmented reality there because I think we'll have like all kinds of virtual concerts and so forth happening with augmented reality. We're in 2022. By the end of the decade, I believe we'll have AR be a very prominent music technology. And then pixel dust might be in the 30s. Okay. Okay. You're calling it now. I'm calling it. So I, I just, it's not some kind of incredible discovery to think about music technology, but always fascinated me that it kind of aligns by the decade. The big shifts. Yeah. We're huge in the 80s and CDs were huge in the 90s and, and MP3s with Napster and iPods in the knots. And then now we're in streaming. We're coming out of, now we're trying to get out of streaming. We're going to AR. It just fascinates me that in these decade chunks that, you know, 44 now, so now I'll be 40s, 50s, 60s. So somewhere, Betty White almost made it to 100. So maybe by Damn it, man. 100, we can get some Betty White recipe. And I can blow and blow. Or maybe, maybe I'm hot. And it's going to be fucking cybernetics. And I just have to close my eyes and think. Yeah, dude. A lot of people were looking at this kind of minority report stuff, and it's all kind of the hardware side. Whereas we can skip all that shit, really, man, and, and throw a, what is it? What is it, what is it, the company cost? A smart link or whatever link? Just throw the chip in your skull, right? And then you just oh, think right, these things. Musk is doing something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Where you can think or chip who was like driving a Tesla or something. <laughs> just hardwired chip into your brain. You know, I consider myself a technologist, a tech file like i like to be at the forefront and testing all these shit but that you know that, as soon as you get into this bioengineering thing i need a few iterations before i bite in right i want to you, you, you think anti-vaxxers or something wait till you <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll say this you know of all the themes and genres and worlds we've gotten to dabble in the steampunk one is to me the most exciting i like that whole cyberpunk shame all those fucking cyberpunk movies are always dystopian and the world is on his like it's toxic and all these other things. They need to do like a, a bright and cheery. Uh, I'd song. love it, man. Give me a, give me a Disney version of that shit. You know, like let's let's oh, go big, on that side for once. I I'm very interested in the foundations of life. Obviously, religion plays a big role in that. Totally. You know, and how, where we come from. And I think the chicken and egg question is one that feels almost impossible to solve because if I ask my dad, he'll say, "Well, ask my dad." And if he say, that, <laughs> you know what I mean. And so it's, it's always a tricky thing to solve, but I'm very interested in this, in, in college, um, I had some friends who were really interested in fractals Ooh. And, and they were always putting up fractal art everywhere, you mm-hmm. know, and you know, you look at fractals and it's kind of this rule set that's recursive in nature, right? It's in nature, like, specifically in nature, right? You see these? Thank you for picking up on that, John. It's exactly what I was going to say in nature. And I'm, I'm very fascinated by the fact that trees grow in this way. And then you look at our lungs, our bronchial tubes, for example, and they grow that way. And then the more we learn about science with like DNA and RNA, you know, you start to learn that there's rules, rules. And I, I joke because I, I, I feel like the, the, the Scientologist, the Scientology religion. I feel like they stole the name that I've always been after. <laughs> I, I kind of wish that, that there was this religion or pursuit of truth or information about the science that, that seems to be dictating where we, nature, came I, from. I'm with you. Most people that are not religious, quote unquote, or spiritual will often say, you know, I don't believe in that stuff, but I believe in science. Right. And by nomenclature, you would want to identify as a Scientologist. But 
the actual group is very different from yeah, I think yeah, I kind of yeah, yeah. To believe like there was an alien mothership or something, and I'm, I'm yep. like, I, I can almost get into that too. But anyway, <laughs> I think it was South Park that taught me the details of Scientology. When I was like, this can't be right, and when I looked it up, I was like, holy shit! Yeah, it's one to one. It's it's like real. I'm like, holy <laughs> shit! It's a thing to explore. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna now bring this back to games. So okay. I went all about the spiritual route. This rule set is interesting to look into. As game developers, we're often recreating worlds. We're kind of recreating- Playing God. A little bit, yeah. Recreating yeah. reality, different realities. So I've always been interested in doing games that have this kind of like simple rule set that then, you know, complex behaviors can, can come out of it. It's something that can apply to games and can be explored in that way. And we've actually talked about distilling things down to its simplest elements and so on. I think there's there's just more interest in that that side of life and that side of game and world building that, that has yet mm -hmm. to be explored. If you Google fractals, you can see these beautiful shapes that you can say are mathematical, right? Because of the symmetry. And I don't know if you believe in like the honeycomb being one of the most mm -hmm. structurally impermeable patterns to hold up any weights or something like that, right? Like mm -hmm. things like that, right? And and you, if you go into that, you can build so much off of it, right? Like game rules, the, the world is built off of that, right? So why not bring that into games? We, we do so much work like replicating physics, you know, the physical laws of nature oh in the goodness. game. Maybe we should look at the scientific rules of creation and, and see if we can put that in games. I love it. I'm still seeing to this day engineers touch math libraries and try to modify physics to be better or faster or more efficient. Maybe there's a different perspective to, to tackle that stuff for sure. Brother, man, I love talking to you. This is kicking off season two on the right energy level. I couldn't have asked a better person. I love how we're ending with thinking about the future, man. This is, this is where it should be. It's about onwards and upwards. What's next? Onwards and upwards always. For the new season, I'm, change, I'm changing it up, right? I used to call it the lightning round. I stole it, I don't know, from an episode of Friends or something mm. like that or some game show. And now it's like, no, nah, I want to put a game spin on it. So we call it final round, right? Like yeah. wins, losers, ties, it doesn't matter. This is the final round. You've made it, Mauro. You're at the end. These are the last gauntlet of questions to get through. Answer as you wish. Okay, I'm ready. Now I'm just going to rapid fire these on you. What is your favorite game genre? Genre would probably be action adventure, I guess. I think action is probably the fair, fair thing, but not first person shoot. It has to be like a third person perspective. Yeah. See the character. Genre of development choice. Which oh, one? development? Mm -hmm. You know, this is one where I actually go back to Rockstar, where the game is the engine. You know what I mean? You basically played, you loaded up the game and you're able to like, you know, drop things in the world or write a script and create it. Like I'd like, I really- Sandbox. It was, it was so fast, the development thing. Like nowadays with, with Unity or Unreal or any like visual C++, you have that this compiling phase. Mm -hmm. You're just kind of like, you're like developing here and you're launching here in the game. I like that building it in the game thing that was going on there. You're taking me back because working at Rockstar, it, it was weird because it felt like playing the game because you're, but you're developing, right? Like it, Red Dead didn't have it, but GTA did. And it was this kind of the moment kind of that the radio stations went in. And so I'm in the game world and I'm building mm. the game, but I'm listening to the radio and I'm getting lost in it. It is technology and all these places we work I mean, at and the I team dynamics. Like, you know, like sculpting, you know? Mm. 
I like that feeling of creating and unity, you know, that it has more of a, I don't know, like a sketch and then hand it or like an animating the keyframes and then hand it. And has it more of a waterfall feel to it? Okay. And, and so I like that more where you're in it and you're, you're messing around. I've tried out that VR making stuff, you know, what that might call that tilt brush or whatever. Yeah. Something like where you're like in that world. 3D sculpting. Yeah. 3D. I, I love it, dude. I, I That's kind of where I'm at today as well. I just like being in the tools, in the engine, right? Like, yeah, that's my happy place. The game and the tool are one. Mm-hmm. Hell yes. Great answer. Deserted Island game. If there's a game, though, that I could replay again, I think is a good question to have. Because it's something I envy having a daughter or any kid, which is like they get to experience everything for the first time. It would probably be Castlevania Lords of Shadow. When you say replay, you mean like kind of wipe your memory, replay fresh for the first time? It's, it's, it's a very linear game. You just kind of play mm-hmm. through it. But, you know, if I did it again, it'd be, it'd be good. It'd be fun. But if I could do it again, you know, Castlevania Lords of Shadow. One. Everybody always cite is which one? Symphony of the Night? That's a good one too. But yeah, Castlevania Lords of Shadow was um, made by Mercury Steam. They're a fantastic studio. They just made Metroid Dread. Aha! It was actually very hot. So, uh-huh. and... Castlevania Lords of Shadow came out in 2010 when Red Dead Redemption came out. And secretly inside, I said, actually, I think that's game of the year, even though we were winning. Okay, great call out. Lords of Shadow. And I like that. I like that. That's a question I'm going to adopt. It was like, what game do you wish you can play again for the first time? That's a good one. Then in the spirit of growth and leaving things better than when we found them, what's something that the industry currently does well? And then I'll ask you on the flip side, what's something that it can do better? I think what they do well is the games. I'll say, I'll say there's so much stuff to play. There's so much more now than there ever was. And I can't find the time or even find out about these games. It's so hard to discover, but that might be something. But there's so much good stuff to play. So, you know, if you're a fine, like, oh, nothing to play, like you're crazy. You're like, crazy. There's so much stuff out there to play. Especially the indie scene is huge and the stuff is just such high quality and so many different platforms of content. You know, I will eventually get a VR. I'm just waiting for the next Oculus to come out. And that'll open up countless new games for me to play. And there's all these indie games that I've, that's on this big list, you know, that I've yet to try. So what I think the industry does well is just making quality content that just seems to overwhelm my free time. I just, <laughs> <laughs> but now that you're a father, right, you get to... Yeah. Get to live through your kids. And then, you know, yeah. I don't know, in terms of what we don't do well, we're not good at predicting or estimating or being good with production. I just, we still have not figured that out. I'm with you. I'm with you. Like a lot of people I know, man, are, are not even interested in like, or just admit that it's a weakness. It'd be like, hey, I can't determine how long it's going to take me to find the fun or build the sequel to the thing because we're trying to do something new that hasn't been done before. Yeah, I, I tend to think that companies should be structured in a way where you have like predictable live cadence kind of system that is on schedule. And then you have another, another division that's just basically a Nintendo like philosophy, which is just like, we're going to prototype and have fun. We're going to find that fun. And then when that's ready, we put it out. But you know, from a business side, it's hard to justify this R&D burn money side. <laughs> While this other one is usually, it's not always growing. It's usually on some kind of decay curve. So it's, there's yep. usually some kind of runway. I guess what we don't do well is still hard to reconcile the business side. Oh yeah, with the creativity side, 
and I guess until we're some socialist, uh, you know, unified income, you know, utopia thing where we don't have to worry about making money, that'll always be a problem. I agree. That'll always be a problem. Let's talk about what this industry could do better, right? And in the time you've been in it, what you've seen, where can we still learn? Where can we improve? You know, one thing that comes to mind is hiring. I feel bad. Why? You remember Chris Roberts? Oh I, yeah. Good, good friend of mine. Love Chris. Worked together for years, had an incredible impact on Midnight Club and Red Redemption and, and, and beyond. He went to go think, do, do vehicles for um, Sony's Planet Side or something like that. Yeah, I, I know him as the vehicle guy these days. The vehicle guy. He's, he's so good at what he does. He's like an eye racing all the time now. Yeah. But I always felt bad. And this was early in my career. Maybe when I interviewed him along with others, I actually didn't want to hire him. And I don't even remember why at this point. I don't remember why. I think because he didn't have game experience per se. There's some reason. And then I, I kick myself every time. I think about this all the time when I hire anybody is I'm like, Chris ended up being like incredible. Oh yeah, man. A rock star in every sense of the word. Every, every sense of the word. And I'm like, what did I not pick up on that made me not want to hire him? You know what I mean? And so I think hiring in general is very tricky. Mm-hmm. Extremely tricky to be able to assess someone's skills and personality and, and team fit and all this and these pressure cooker like oh, yeah. things, right? The gauntlets, yeah. But I think one thing the industry does poorly is I see a lot of times that you, we hire for niche in exactly what we want. We already kind of have a model in our head of what we we expect or want. Yeah, we don't always hire for the whole person. We're always looking for like, I don't know, if you're on Halo, you're looking for someone to tune your weapons. You're like, show me examples of you tuning weapons. Yep. Right? And we're not good at like recognizing transferable skills, recognizing people's ability to learn quickly and so on. So I, I feel the industry is often very rejective of, no, that person hasn't done it before. Therefore, they can't mm-hmm. do it for us, no matter what we're looking for. So I don't have an answer to, to, to it. I think it's something I'd like to look in, perhaps even personal growth-wise. I'd like to try to improve yeah. how I interview and how I assess talent and how you can try to find the truth of, of things. But yeah, it's something I think we could all work on is, is how to hire better. That's a step in the right direction, right? Is to just be able to kind of spot your own bias or recognize that what you thought it was great because you had others to sound off against, right? That were looking at different things than what you were looking for. So maybe there's at least a plus one to this multi-team, several round interview process where if it was just you and him, you would have gave the thumbs down and and would have missed out on his talents and skills for all of our games. Yes. But luckily, because it, it goes through several rounds with different people that come with their own perspectives and experience and biases, and you guys collectively do the old kind of gladiator style, thumbs up, thumbs down, and majority wins kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's at least a nod to that. That helped. He did get hired. Yeah, said, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I dig that a lot, right? Like I spend a ton of time writing job descriptions, man. And that's some of the, I hate, you know, you have a page and and you start out with asking for everything, man. You want, you want this many years of experience and these games and these tool sets and, and good communicator and great writer. (laughs) And then then you put that out there and it's like, you either catch too much and you got to refine or you don't get anything that you're looking for. 
But I, I like the approach of just like continuously hiring. Like, hey, man, if you are creative and can communicate, I want to see your resume. I just want to talk to you. Right. Even when you don't have a job for them, is what you're saying. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And to go, you know, I've been, I've been on both ends of it, right? Where you kind of go through the super generic Google style questionnaire was like, you know, how would you catch a hundred butterflies or design me an elevator system? Or, you know, why is Superman an appealing character, right? Very general, broad questions that kind of probe other parts of your, your creativity. And then you got to hit them with logic questions. You know, you got to hit them with like systems, programming types of things, just to see just to see where they are, they're comfortable or not comfortable. I always like that about the rock star route, right? You get, you get a super creative, open-ended aspect, and then you get like a super technical, give me a half space test, right? Like, how do you know if something's on this side of the door or that side of the door? And you're like, holy crap, I don't remember my college vector math, man. Like, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, it's tricky to recall that stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the programming interviews are kind of notorious for that, where can you, you know, show me a binary tree or a sorting algorithm and all that kind of stuff academically that you learn, but more often than not on the job, you're not necessarily doing that, that kind of work. There's a function already given to you in the editor or the tool set, right? Like is player in this volume or facing this direction or something like that? Yeah. I think it's, it's something that the industry could work on and I, all industries, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. could could mm -hmm. work on his hiring and how to assess talent and, and so on. So it's very poignant these days. It seems like an arms race for talent. You can hire from anywhere now. Yeah. And so why not go for the cream of the crop? But then in your search for like the best, right? We all have kind of, oh yeah, I want somebody that's been in graphics from the beginning, right? Like that's who I want for this job. And well, like, slow down, man. Like maybe there's other people that you're, you're ruling out yeah. too fast that can bring it my favorite thing on, on LinkedIn, I saw someone said, I don't know what it was, requires five years of experience in so-and-so SDK. And it wasn't even around for five years. And they're like, they're like I invented the, I invented that SDK two years ago. <laughs> I wrote it. <laughs> and you, that's why I'm not, you know, and you declined it. <laughs> that's awesome. I know we even got, it was, some, I forgot the place I worked at that, that had like a written, a tool, like some AI ML tool that you just feed in the job description and it would flag any non-inclusive language. And I, I, I couldn't even tell you what the details were, but you know, there's this pros and cons to these algorithm or whatever they call them, you know, these like auto resume crawlers that if your format is off or it's a doc versus a PDF, you're just kind of automatically denied before a human ever sees it. So there's, there's a lot of different ways. I'm a big fan, Mauro, of, you know, video portfolios. Oh, you have to be visual nowadays. People's time is short and, and so on. And, and, you know, you got to have a portfolio. I do a lot of installing games, you know, especially if I- Oh, you play a bunch, yeah? Well, especially if it's university hires, graduates and so on, they're, they've often had to do student projects and I'll install them and play them. I mean, it's games after all, it's interactive, right? So you should, but if you, if time is short, at least do a video of the gameplay mm -hmm. and yeah, you got you want to show, not tell and demonstrate that you make games. Yes. Now, one of my interview questions is, is, a, is I always say like, when did you transition from a, a player of games to a maker of games? Mm. You know, because playing games is good. It's healthy. You should have, but. But making games is what we're hiring for. It's what we do. So try to demonstrate the work that you've done and be as clear as possible as to what your contribution was. Yes. Saying the word we is good. It's about team. Yeah. If you, all you hear is we, you often ask, well, what, what did you do? Yep. 
how did you contribute? So it's just little things like that to just try to tease out what they actually can do and have done. 100%. How is the, the talent pool down there from the universities in, in Melbourne? The talent in the universities is, it blows your mind. Yeah. It's really good. It's really good. Every year I go to the showcases and, you know, there are, there are years I'm like, wow. I'm like, how long did you two to do that? It's like, oh, we did it in two weeks. Like, you're, you're kidding me. It's really, really good. What tends to stand out when you have a, I don't know, 30 person class, they all went through the same curriculum. Mm. They all are smart. They all can communicate. They all have great sensibility. How do you stand out? What tends to stand out for you when you grab one? I'm like, aha, this is the person I want to, want to talk to or follow up with. I actually gravitate to, to polish. Polish is the hard part. Yes. Right. You just look at like 3D platformers or something in the early days, you know, maybe like Gex or something compared to Super Mario Brothers, Mario 64. There's the ability to polish something so that it feels like an actual complete game, even if it's just one level, demonstrates that they have that je ne sais quoi and makes for a good game designer. I'm a little hesitant because I know it's hard. I know when you're under the pump in an academic setting, particularly, like you don't always have the time and you often punt that part of it. Mm-hmm. But I would rather see like a smaller content and a more attention to that polish than to just, you know, create a longer demo. I would plus one that given the college timelines and however many months they get to work on these things, I know you can approach at it from two ends, right? Be like, oh, I'm going to create a hundred levels and this many hours of gameplay versus a fraction of that, but it's a super tight level that I want to replay yeah. over and over and over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can I'm, speak to the to the meta. You can speak to where it goes or how you want to get to it. But I think if you can demonstrate in, in the prototype, in the playable way you build, mm-hmm. really tight feel or a tight core loop, yep. that impresses me. Totally, totally. That's a great call out. Last one is who would you nominate to fall out of the play area? Oh, so two people came to mind. Okay. And then they're, they're people I worked with back at Angel. First would be Troy, Troy Bowman. Worked with him and then he went on to work at Midway, I think. He went, I think he worked on Mortal Kombat and then he spent some time at Gearbox. Nice. I think he used some at Gearbox to go to another company. So he's on my list. Him and I were in the trenches working on Midnight Club. So he'll give you some Angel Studio. <laughs> What's his discipline? Design. Okay, nice. And then the second person I'll give you is Khan. Khan Jakarl. And Khan, again, I met him at, at Angel Studios. He was a programmer back then. We used to go to those California raves, you know, together. And then he went and left. He ended up doing some work for Activision in marketing. He did like Call of Duty marketing and Guitar Hero. Oh, wow. From engineering to marketing. Yeah. And then he had a stint doing his own um, startup. He was in the Bay Area when I was at Zynga. And he did his own company for a little bit. And now he's at Unity. Uh, oh, I think he's doing yeah. I'm not sure. Love to talk think, to him about that. I think he'd be very interesting just kind of going f- from programming. He even started the same way he went to Penn, I believe. And when Julie came out to recruit Pennsylvania and, you know, she recruited him and then she recruited me in Pittsburgh. So we kind of started at the same time in the industry and he'd be very, I think his going from code to marketing and now Unity, I think it'd be very interesting to talk to him. I love that that range, right? Like games, marketing side is so different from the development side, even the tool side, right? Like I, I can speak to a little yeah. bit of that. So I'd love to see how it's or like on, on Unity. Fantastic nominations. And before I let you go, do you have any closing words for the world out there? I don't know. I guess the one thing is just try to stay fresh, stay relevant. That's what I've, I've tried to do my whole career is if you're going to get into games, 
games move very fast. You know, NFTs, I, get, I think is just kind of another example of things move like lightning, new trends emerge all the time. You want to kind of ride it like you're surfing, you know, and then when that wave peters out, you got to turn, you got to look over your shoulder and, and look for the next wave. That's the industry. If you choose to be in this industry, sometimes when I hire people and you know, interns, the first thing I ask them is, why did you foolishly choose this industry? What made you foolishly choose this industry as a career? Because it's going to be a wild ride. And the one thing that's worked for me is just to, to stay relevant and to move to what's happening in the industry as, as it happens. I love it, man. Stay relevant, move with the waves, stay above the waves, bring something original each and every time yep. while researching what's come before. I got to ask, is there a wrong answer to that question? Whenever, you know, is there ever a red flag answer? Like, oh, okay, no, it's going to go bad. I mean, I guess due diligence, there's always risk. So you're just always evaluating risk. And I do think the older you get, the harder your risk profile changes. And so now I have a family that I have to be worried about. And there's different factors about how I consider my time. So it's usually, it's, it's almost the same advice you give with investing, which is the younger or earlier you are in your career, the more risks you can take, right? So I guess that's the one thing is just when you do jump ship or change as you, as you, as you go with things, just try to be comfortable with your own personal risk assessment. You need to be comfortable because you need to go all in. Mm -hmm. Whatever you choose, you need to give your whole self and to just be ready. You know, what if it fails? What if you, this investment doesn't pay off? All right, brother. Till next time. And in fact, you bring up a good point, right? In this cultural, what is it? In, in the spirit of inclusivity and, and getting people on a platform that brings out their best from a cultural standpoint. I think I would definitely be maybe potentially exploring kind of round table styles, right? Like bringing oh, yeah. in multiple people at once and, and, and focusing on, Hey, the team. And from that perspective, see, see where we end up with that. So, so thank you for, for seeding that my friend. Love it. That'd be great brother. See you on the flip side. Awesome. Great catching up again, John. There you go. Our inaugural season opening episode the longest episode i've recorded and edited featuring the good homie with sharing so much insight on two fronts one allowing me to right the wrongs of my youth and not leveraging being near him or in his circle of influence and taking advantage of his insight and experience and leveling myself up when i was just a junior associate level designer. And secondly, I love the messaging of fighting to stay relevant as people in this industry with up and coming young bloods that can do twice the work in half the time, right? You got to fight to stay relevant and keep moving and ducking and rolling with the punches and, and, and staying ahead of the current trends. There was a lot there talking about what's ahead in the future. Who knows what we're going to be doing, what we're going to see. So it's really awesome speculating on that. In the next episode featuring Marie Measure Wild debuting in two weeks on Valentine's Day. You won't want to miss that as we go through her career starting in esports and then moving into game design and even into game direction. It's a heck of a ride and it's too seldom that we have female game directors in this space. So I look forward to bringing her onto the show for your insight. Make sure to follow us so that you don't miss out on that episode.
Thank you for listening, devs. If you found this episode informative, I ask that you pay a link forward to a developer to help grow our listener community. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev out, please go to outofplayarea.com and click on the Calendly link at the top to meet up. Please make sure you get approval from your manager or studio's PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area, the Game Developers Podcast, releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Please make sure to follow us to see what developer falls out of the play area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Until next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Mega Ran, bring them home. Flight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Cabin crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out-of-play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, no, we got the vibe. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out-of-play area podcast. Out-of-play, out-of-play area podcast. We got a little something for the game devs stay strong stay true and stay dangerous had to switch the styles for a challenge best thing out of harlem since young miles morales a new podcast comes to provide the balance with game dev veterans and rising talents out of play welcome to the out of play area podcast a show by game devs for game devs with no ads no bs just the real welcome to the out-of-play area. Let's go.